Hello everyone and welcome back to Can I Interject? Daniel here, here again to share with you our thoughts about topics, board games, conspiracies, top tens and everything in between. And once again I am joined by Gregor. Hello. And Neil. Hello there. So we'll start off as we always do with a wee catch up. We'll go around and see how everyone's time has been since the last time we chatted so i'll start with you gregor what have you been up to uh well i've had i had new round the weekend there we had a takeaway and board game evening i chose specifically socially distanced board games and where there were no no common feces and so there was no cross-contamination the cleansing fluid was available there was two bottles on the the one table we were at it was well used for the evening uh, but yeah, we had a, went for a, well, it was a sort of mixed cuisine takeaway establishment we went to, but we had some Indian curries. If my recommendation, and I usually go for what's called the handy curry, and the description reads on the takeaway menu, the mother of all curries, and I've never deviated from this, I'd, I'd recommended this to the other two. But Daniel got another curry, a chicken curry, and they were quite similar. So I don't know if mine was the mother of all curries. As advertised. So I would say exactly the same. Yeah. So I feel like I've been duped in that sense. But it still was good. I don't know. What are your thoughts on Neil? What are your thoughts on the food? Uh, yeah, it was great. A lot of scepticism uh, around the table about the, how the one shop can produce such high quality kebabs and high quality curries at the same time is usually quite a rare one. We'd had the calzone out there before and we were impressed. And so for them to be two for two is quite an achievement. I mean, it's good value for money as well. Was that the home of the Monster Calzone? Yeah, that was the Monster Calzone. Only comes in one size. <laughs> Massive. I'm having, I'm having flashbacks. I'm having, oh no, could you just sit in a corner? Although I've become slightly disillusioned by the the handy Mother of All Curries. Uh, otherwise, yeah, it was really enjoyable. Um, we played Spectre Ops, three-player board game. Well, it was three, two five players. Um, it was good. Uh, one player plays... An agent where you need to move secretly around a board and then escape without detection or with without being caught and killed. And the other two are hunting them down. Uh, Dan, we've not played this, but Neil, what did you think about Spectre Ops? Yeah, I think it's a good it's a good three player game. I think that's probably the perfect number for it, to be honest. Yeah, it works well with two as well. But yeah, if you go four or five players, it introduces like a traitor mechanic or mechanism into it. So uh, yeah, it works really well with three. But not interesting strategy from all players, and there's a bit of teamwork in there as well. Yeah, Neil was the lone wolf trying to make his way around the board unsuccessfully. Trying to make my escape, yep. And then later in the evening with a crocodile. Oh, very good. We've heard, we've talked about this on the show before, uh, but it's like, I don't know, how would you describe it, Neil? It's kind of like bowls, but with, it's not as like curling, with with small markers, and you just... Flick them into the middle. It's exactly like curling, but you just flick the little buttons into the centre with your finger. Yep, rather than to the end. And you knock other player and you knock other players' markers. And very good. I I'd like to see how it can progress into a more than two player game, but that's for future. Yeah, a four player game might become quite chaotic <laughs> with the buttons going everywhere. <laughs> Could be entertaining at the same time. Yeah, it was a good time had by all. And yeah, so that was that was the main main part of it. 
Very good. What about you, Neil? Any anything fresh from down south? Uh, well, yeah, as Gregor mentioned, we had the board games night slash Indian. Uh, also with you, Dan, on applying shifting earlier that day. Oh, that was a treat. <laughs> uh, made my made my way back down to Northern England on a quest to dig up my garden, start my own construction project, and I don't know. Did I tell you the weekend? No, you didn't. Uh, I don't think so. Did I not? Well, this is uh, quite quite a big one for me. I've I must have hit uh, some sort of crazy motivation on Monday, but I've got a bit of quiet time at work slash no time at work, so I have went all out and tried to build a patio. So I went on Monday to Wix and got 1.2 tons of cement. I went to I've got six tons of stones sitting in the garden. I've got two tons of slabs. And I've spent the whole day digging, the whole week digging, just digging and digging through stone, chipping through stone. I've bought sledgehammers, spade, and it's like, have you ever seen that film Holes? Yes. It's, I've just been doing that all week. And then there's been... Search for treasure. And there's been, well, I've been, I'm laying a patio and I'm also prospecting for uranium. <laughs> I've done none of those things so far. But the yeah the construction site gave me the skip, but they've had a few snags with their forklift, so they've kind of held me back. So, like all good construction projects, we are a little bit behind and a little bit over budget. But I'm sure I'll get there. I've got a quiet week next week as well. But yeah, so I've actually just been. That's why I sent you that picture for a bit of context. It's been just almost like a calorie calorie free week. I've had burgers every day, I've had square sausage sandwiches for breakfast every day, and I've had pizzas. It's just as much carbs and salt as possible. So it's not calorie-free week? Well, not calorie-free, but every calorie seems like it's free because I'm burning so much. Yeah, all right, okay. And I can understand why where the stereotype from workmen drinking beer all the time comes from, because it's been great to have a few beers at the end of the day. <laughs> there, there is something very satisfying about that, that's true. Oh, phenomenal. Open a fresh keg of Heineken after you've finished your work. Well, I started off the week at Terence, but I ran out pretty quickly. <laughs> oh, thank Oh, you improved then. Everything, things got better. But yeah, that's uh, back-breaking work, and I've still got... I mean, I've not even finished digging the hole yet. Never mind levelling it and putting the stones down. So yeah, I'm, but I'm, I'm going back to Scotland this weekend. We're going to Michelin Star Restaurant for the first time. So that's what's... That's me. And you're done? And Dan, what have you been up to in the last couple of weeks? Oh, silly now, don't jump on me like that. Calm down, guys. Um, that's not a lot, to be honest. It's gone quiet after my the COVID nonsense of a couple of weeks ago. Just being back into the routine of work. Leaving the house at six, getting home at six. Delightful time. Um, genuinely, I, I live such a, a boring, terribly boring life. I think the highlight probably was shifting the appliances with you, Neil. And almost losing my leg in the process of it which was which was very amusing because we're trying to we're trying to move these white appliances around the side of the in-laws house and we just carry them very carefully but the surface isn't the most even surface you could possibly be moving appliances on and i slipped and rather than letting the appliance go i held on to it and sort of did a bit of damage to the back of my leg purely superficial Nothing broken or anything, just just looks like I've been a small dog's tried to maul my leg. But other than that, it's been 
pretty quiet. Uh, caught up with some family friends on Sunday. That was nice. Just Sunday just gone. Catching up, hearing how things are down in the south. They live in the south of England and they were just up because they couldn't go anywhere else, really. Uh, all socially distanced, all very sensible, and... Could even leave their house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they can now. They're, where they are, they're absolutely fine. Obviously they're, obviously, they're dodging all the hotspots as they're driving up the road. Yeah, it was really nice. It was really nice to catch up and to see them, but week weekdays are the same thing every day. Week Living for the weekend at the minute. Well, we're back in, back in lockdown. Yep. Well, you are. I'm not. Well, you're meant to be. <laughs> Yeah, everywhere, everywhere else is apart from your house. I've, I, well, this has actually been the first week since lockdown started that I've not actually left. This is the only way I've been completely within the, the bounds of my... The law. <laughs> the law. <laughs> it's about time, you know. Yeah, dude, like, you'd have to learn eventually. Thanks, guys. Good to hear what you've been going up to. And I'll just do a quick overview of of the running this time around, this episode. Uh, we've we've slightly changed the format. Uh, well, two of us have changed the format, and one of one 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 of us is sort of lagging on. I'm work in progress. We'll see how it goes. If this doesn't work, then we'll think of other ways of of doing it. But you know, it's always good to experiment. Good to try out new things. So instead of having the usual topic each, we're just going to have one topic. Uh, give us more time to maybe focus on that. Talk about that a bit. We'll have we'll still have our board game section. We're going to have a top ten, and obviously the major concern is don't panic. We've still got conspiracy corner coming in at the end, so everyone can breathe a big sigh of relief at that one. So I think we're going to start with the topic. Let's go for it. Neil, would you like to introduce the topic? Uh, yeah, I'll introduce the topic. It is the wonderful world of golf. Don't turn off just yet. <laughs> He, he he does actually like it, guys. You know, he's he's just he's just not that stimulated right now. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a fantastic sport. It's played by all ages. I've played it since the tender age of ten. I was a member at uh, the local golf club. Gregor was a similar age, and mentally challenging, physically challenging. It's a pleasure to watch. It's a pleasure to play, and it's a what probably the best of all is the one of the most social games that you ever find out there. Well, when you say physically challenging, it's not like rugby, see, <laughs> or tennis. Well, no, but you're walking, you're walking, you're walking like four miles. Maybe our course it was, and an amateur game because well, ours was built on the side of a hill, so there was a lot of sort of uh, changes in altitude, and also you're carrying your own bag as well, which. Uh, which will add to the resistance, uh, unless you join the the buggy the buggy brigade. No, oh, yeah, no, no time for that. No, let's not get into that. No, legitimate reasons only. Save that for another episode, another topic. <laughs> well, actually, fun, fun, funnily enough, actually, I hope none of the pat nuts are listening. <laughs> but there was a comment about the two leaders of the that tournament I won a couple of weeks ago. The the other front runner was in a buggy with no ailments. Oh come on! Oh, so so there was a an underground uh, members of the the field that were uh, was it cheering for me to win? Oh, there's rumblings. Yeah, and future future buggies to be banned without ailments. <laughs> 
You need a blue badge buggy. You get a letter from your doctor to get a buggy. <laughs> That's actually not a bad idea. They do do that in competitions. But I, actually, that that is... It's a good... I like the subject because there's also... The game has changed massively in the last 12 months. Hugely. Probably bigger than the last decades that I've ever known the game with the new rulings that have come into place. Uh, the main one being you can putt with the flag in. You don't have to remove the flag. Which I had a big problem with at the start because I have always... I see it as traditional to take the pin out and I was always... And you always got looked down upon if you didn't because it was seen as slow play. And a two-stroke penalty. And a two-stroke penalty. And the other one is also to speed up the game. The rule was that people are now playing ready golf so it's no longer... You don't have to have the honour to take the tee. If you're ready, you just go. Which are, again, out with tradition, but I can see the reason for it. If someone's faffing about in their bag, someone just wants to hit their ball. And the other one that came in is dropping the ball from knee height instead of from shoulder length, and you can place the ball, I think, a lot more easily. I don't know too much about that rule. One rule I thought you'd be really, that would really impact your game a lot is they've reduced the amount of time you can spend looking for your ball. <laughs> yes, yes. I found that actually... I found, no, I found, I found that as a massive a massive player in the game when I was playing a couple of weeks ago because I would say 50% of the time if you hit your ball into the boondie, you just didn't look for it, you hit another one. Because three minutes is not a long time. It's enough time to look in there, have a little... Well, three minutes compared to five for three or four people looking is a big difference. So, if you think your ball is in deep rough, you're not going to be able to get it. Yeah, but I had a big problem with the rule changes to start with because it was seen as ready golf and fast play, but it took away some of the old-fashioned holding the pin for each other and the ceremony of it all. It took away, I took away that from it. Especially, the yeah, the honour on the tee was always... It was like respectful of the person who won the last hole. It makes it it makes it a little more accessible for you, don't I think? Because it was alright for us because we grew up watching golf and like playing it. But if you're coming, if you're trying to get into the game, like these conventions aren't helping people, like like newcomers, because like where do you start learning the stuff? You need somebody else to introduce you to it to show you what to do. It would be difficult for a new person to look up online and be able to fulfill all these conventions and rules first time you're playing, whereas these are just a bit more common sense, I think. Absolutely not, but there's the the rules of golf, which is very complex, but even simpler, the etiquette of golf is also there's an etiquette handbook and there's a rules handbook. The etiquette rule book's quite simple. Don't stand on lines, things like that. Wait for the honour and the tea. But do they still do it in professional golf? Are they Have they adopted these rules wholly? Or do they still do the, obviously the putt with the pin in, but the ready golf thing on the tee, do they? They can do, but I think they'll most, I, I don't know, but I imagine most of them will just stick to the honour system. Dan, I want you to weigh on this subject, as I don't know if you've ever played the, the game on a full course or not. I don't know if you have any desire to in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> I only came into golf about 10 years ago. I had no interest in it before then until I met your sister and I kind of realised very quickly that if I don't know golf 
conversations will be a bit thin on the ground in some places. But no, it's all right though because it branched out into rugby and, and American football, so th- things things per- per- perked up a bit, and even football sometimes. Golf and gambling. I'll get you far in a conversation. <sighs> well, so I understand, but I've realised that it could it could be it could be two raindrops running down the side of a window, and you could probably still get a gambling conversation out of it. So I was I don't want to say I'm not quite, I wouldn't say I was late to it, but it's only about ten years ago I got into it, or well, started to understand it, or even understand what was going on. I mean, golf's like a lot of sports. There are big names in it that people recognise. Big, big characters. Is that that plural? Big names or big name? Names. No? Just one big name, Neil? Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, I'm just thinking I don't really see see much outside of Tiger Woods being mentioned in mainstream media. Yeah, people, I mean, there's one big name in golf and there's I mean, if you watch golf, there's loads of big names. But, I mean, to the world, there's one big name in golf. That's Jordan Spieth. Oh, sure. That's another topic conversation. <laughs> I, say that, I say that most people I heard Rory McIlroy, whether you watch golf or not these days, for better or for worse. I'd heard of I'd heard of McIlroy. I'd heard of Woods. I'd heard of Nicholas. I'd heard of Mickelson. I'd heard of Palmer. So there were plenty of names which I'd heard of prior to showing any interest. But I've always been quite into sports, so I suppose if you're into sport, you kind of pick up more names, even if it's not necessarily a sport you're interested in. Uh, but since since then, I've I've definitely watched it. Uh, before then, I don't think I'd ever watched golf. I'd ever on the television, or I've definitely never seen it in you know never in I don't say real life, but sort of being there actually at the golf course. And ne- I've never played it. I still haven't played it. I've still never played a game, a round of golf. I wouldn't even know how to. wouldn't even know where to start. But I suppose I quite enjoy watching but I like sports, so I could sit down and watch it and still enjoy it. If I'm honest, I prefer it on the TV because I really struggle to follow the ball when I'm actually in person. I can't see it. I don't know what everyone's looking at when they're staring at the sky. Well, Dan, I must admit that has taken... A good 20, 28 years of practice watching the Open to be able to follow that ball. <laughs> it depends on the sky, though, and where you are, though. That See, there's too many variables. I prefer just a, a sky TV camera to just say, all right, there it goes. There's the there's the line that we're putting in to show you the the, the direction of the ball. Oh, I can see the line. I know where I'm from. Oh, and there it is. It's on, there it is, back on the fairway again. That's fine. Thank you very much. I'd, I'd like to try it, but I think of of sports... If you think about sort of the main main sports of cricket and rugby and football and I mean even basketball and hockey and things like that, um, I mean ice hockey is so huge, becoming big, so big now as well over here. I find golf's more complicated for the equipment that you actually use, so that's what throws me off because I'm like, oh, I have no idea. I just just give, I'd do, I'd you know, um, Happy Gilmore. Just give me anything. I'll just whack it. See what happens. Well, by by rules of the game, you're allowed 14 clubs in the bag. So you've got distances up to 600 yards and you've got 14 different instruments that you'll get that ball into that hole in as many short... And there's, there's even been some cases you've used every every single club on the same hole, Neil, I think. Wasn't that right? <laughs> I was, I was going to say there, Neil, thank you very much for explaining the, the blade basics there for me because I, obviously I didn't realise you had to hit the ball with it. Distance and then get in all as few shots as possible, but um, 
Seems simple. It does seem simple. <laughs> and you've got 14 different clubs to choose from. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's, that's like, that's ridiculous though. Then just have three or four. Why do you need 14? And I know why you need 14. So that, that was a, that was a rhetorical question. Unless there's anybody listening who now is thinking, why do you need 14 clubs? And, you know, that's a conversation you guys are welcome to have. Could do with 20. But it's, no, you know, I won't, I won't knock it too much. It's not my top, not my top thing to watch. Not my top sport. But I, I do enjoy it when I do watch it. And I have had the luck of being able to actually go to the Open when it was last at St. Andrews. And that was, it was a really nice experience. Like I say, I could only follow it so far going round because I just can't follow the ball. So it kind of seems like I'm just watching somebody swinging a club at nothing when the ball vanishes and it magically reappears on the ground. But it's just really good atmosphere. You know, lots of friendly people. All the people who are working there as well, they seem to be very clued up on what they're doing. And... Yeah, it's just it's, it's a nice day out. I would have said it, it's not cheap, but it's a nice day out. <laughs> uh, n- notoriously, not as a cheap game. Absolutely not. Not if you have to buy fourteen clubs. I think that's its main problem. Actually, golf, it's elitism. Similar to I think it, that in skiing, it's kind of the the equipment itself is so highly priced to get into the into the sport. But it's like it's not even that because I think you could get the equipment. It is still highly priced, but you don't need to pay like zero quid for a set of irons or six hundred pounds for a set of clubs. You can get loads like cheap stuff second hand or like budget sets as well for like you could get a set up for well for less than a hundred pound, I reckon. But then it costs you more than that to play the course. Yeah, and well, ours was three pound for a round of nine, and you got pitch and putt courses as well. They're quite cheap. Three pound a round of nine? Where? At our course. Was it? Yeah, that was for juniors though. Maybe it was a fiver for an adult. <laughs> I forgot we should probably mention why we're this the the prime reason we've got this topic this week apart from our conjoined love of golf is the U.S. Open this week. One of golf's four majors. But yeah, it is hands down my favourite sport ever, and it always will be. It's probably the only t- it's probably the only time in my life that you get to chuck the chuck the phone in the golf bag, and you don't think about that for the next four or five hours. Where normally I'm quite glued to my phone, but that is just a completely separate. You know, you just. An escape from reality, if anything, and an escape from calm temperament as well. <laughs> that seems counterproductive. An advert for golf, if ever I heard of. <laughs> you want to be in a rage? Go play some golf. <laughs> Without your phone. <laughs> Put your phone away so you don't smash it, possibly with 14 different clubs. Gregor, would you say it's your favourite sport? I would say it's my favourite sport to watch. And probably certainly as an individual sport, it's my favourite to play. I did, I did really enjoy playing rugby. I about to say as a port, as opposed to other individual sports such as darts. Well, squash. Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. Tennis, like racket sports, stuff like that. Because I quite, I quite enjoy squash. I've never been fussed on badminton. I think it's because a lot of people played it at the school. They're quite good. Whereas squash always felt like a long level pegging. Uh, but yeah, golf is always really enjoyed golf. Like you say, it's a just a really good day out, or a few hours out. Well, like I say, I've never played, so I think that's... I'm not... I don't know. Have you ever played any crazy golf or any of its derivatives? I play, I play some crazy golf, but I don't think crazy golf quite falls in the category of like, <laughs> what we're talking about here. It's, it's, like, it's, like saying, it's like saying, you know what, 
I could have been a professional football player, but I quite like playing some foosball. had my first drunk round the other day, other week. Uh, when I mentioned I was going to Anik when I was playing with those butchers, we were sitting waiting for ages. We had, I think me and the other guy we were playing with had three pints of Guinness before we stepped on the first tee, and I proceeded to have a very bad round. But it's one that I think it's a sport you can't really drink before. There's not many sports you can drink before. I've tried and I've, I've tried, I've tried in a few, and no, none have been a success. Yeah, it does require a keen hand-eye coordination goal. <laughs> Absolutely, and a steady and a steady footing as well. But it's funnily, funnily enough, the guy that won it had seven cans on the way round. Is on the way round. But it was a three before that killed me. That was it. I topped it off the first. <laughs> I think. I think going back to the whole perception of it being sort of like a posh sport as well. I think it's. It's always that cliche that that's where business deals are made, and that's where company, you know, executives go to. T- that's Trump's quote. <laughs> I don't think it's. I mean, you could possibly see it in that obsession, but then if you actually see some of the fans, particularly the Americans, I mean, their behaviour sort of suggests that this isn't that posh. That's the thing because it's it's not a posh sport. It is. It is a posh sport. Like it, there, it is. It, it it is, but like some of the people we know in in the golfing community, <laughs> you would not call them posh individuals. <laughs> well, yeah, you've got council courses, you've got you've got the the high end private um, invite only golf clubs, and like Loch Lomans and the most of the ma- most of the major courses. But then you've also got the the council courses, public courses where. Easy accessible, then you get all walks of life in there. But, but I suppose because if you've got in like private clubs, which are particularly private, like like you say, yeah, I suppose that's it's, di- it's different when it's individual, though, isn't it? Because it becomes more personal. But you you can play football with four jumpers and a ball between uh, however many of you. All you need to do is chip in for a ball between seventies or however many are playing, or there's play. There's plenty of goalposts at public parks. It's free. Like you need to pay to go on a golf course. You need to pay for the equipment to play golf. But they're all barriers to entry. But I wouldn't say they're necessarily massive barriers to entry, particularly in Scotland. I think just given the prevalence of courses, like there's our local course when we were growing up was really cheap. There was always secondhand clubs kicking about. You can sometimes rent them for the the club itself, depending on the club. Um, or you'd hand me downs, or you could pick up them, pick up second-hand clubs fairly cheap, or even like a budget set. But I think it's more the snobbery around golf is what I'm trying to get at in terms of elitism. Because you take some of the biggest clubs in the world, in America, particularly, and and in, and in the UK, but America is extremely prevalent with their country clubs and their hundreds of thousand pounds membership, and you've got Augusta, which is the host of one of the majors. There's not an institution more elitist than them in America, I don't think, in terms of how they've treated people in the past and how they continue to treat people. The pros, the, the pros don't come across. That I, I can't think of many pros that are posh. No, they're not. They can barely. Some of them can barely string a sentence together. <gasps> beef. What about beef? Oh, beef. I lo- like. He's one of the reasons why I, I, I kind of well, I like the sport in the first place because I saw him interviewed once. And it was just the most down-to-earth person. And it's the beard as well always helps. Yeah, it's it's a funny one. It almost seems like it's an individual sport. Because if you, you know, you're saying about tennis, well, look at Wimbledon. And Wimbledon has that perception of being 
quite posh. But actually, you look at some of the people who are sitting there watching. I mean, all due respect, Andy Murray fans aren't exactly all graduates of Eton College, are they? So, you know, and... Again, tennis has got quite a high barrier to entry. I'd say more so than golf, because you're paying a handsome sum per hour to rent a tennis court. And you, ha- and you have to be an athlete. And I might actually refute that comment you made there, Dan, because I went to see Queen's Tennis and I saw Andy Murray play and the crowd was just... It was just full of West London, as I described, Kensington and Chelsea lot. That was just the whole crowd. Ah, but that's, that's Queen's, though. Queen's isn't as... I mean, more people want to see Wimbledon, so people travel further distances to see Wimbledon than they will to go see go see Queens. And I think you can always get not always get a ticket to Wimbledon, but there there are certain tickets reserved for like walk-ins that you can queue if if you really want to get in Wimbledon. I believe there are ways you can get in. Like just as an, I mean, you still need to pay, obviously. <laughs> so that's that's a barrier, but it's not ex- exclusive. In, or drawn or anything like that, and there's and there's it's not just one, it's not just centre court. How many? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how many courts there are, but there there are plenty of smaller courts where you know the the preliminary games are being played and the round one and round two games are being played, and anyone you know you can get a ticket to see that. You don't have to get centre court tickets to say you've been to Wimbledon. Uh, and back to golf, I was about to say, and we digress. Yeah. So what what are your opinions on? Dan, you might not know too much about this, but what are your opinions on Augusta National as a golf club? Because obviously it's home home to the Masters, the typically the first major of the year. I, I mean, yeah. So I like the course. I like, I like that at least one of the majors is it's got the uniqueness because obviously there's three American majors and one British major. So the British one has got this uniqueness that is British courses traditionally links courses. It's all they're all links courses. All links, yeah. Yeah, and America, the US PGA and the US Open. I, I heard a comment from one of the pros, I think it was the US PGA played a few weeks ago, and they said, yeah, it, it kind of feels like a US Open because it, I think it was a previously played US Open course. And I was thinking in my head, well, the US PGA and the US Open are not too far apart in the way they operate apart from just the time of year. Well, the US Open is typically set up a lot tougher than the PGA. PGA is typically like a sort of parklands course, whereas the US Open, it's always a public course, so it's never like a country club. So is it, is it, is it, I never knew that. It's always a public course? Yeah, it's always a public course, and it's always, they always try to they've said for a while that they try to target a winning scorer in a bit par. So you'll see them set up the golf course really, because a typical winning score on the tour is maybe between 10 and 15 under. For the four rounds, whereas USG tried to set up so the winning scores around about level par, and you see that in the results. I mean, sometimes we watched and it's been, I mean, multiple over, like five over. Well, yeah, you've especially the USPG, you've seen very, very low scoring. Yeah, I mean, well, day was twenty one under or something. Twenty fifteen was it not? I think Tigers won it in the high teens as well, at least once. He's I think it was fifteen, eighteen under. But yeah, so Augusta, I, I like that it's the same course every year. I like it. It suits some golfers. It doesn't suit others. There's It's not an easy course by any stretch of the imagination, especially the worldwide known greens. Uh, everyone will always comment, if a, if a green's fast, it's, it's, it's like Augusta. None more prevalent than, you'll know the year, Gregor, was it 
2007, where just there was just no no water in the course at all. No 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 player could hold one of the greens. No, that was um, that was Shinnecock Hills that year. Sokum was there. No, there was an Augusta as well. It was one green that you just they had to they had to water it in between players. I can't. I remember there's been a couple of US Opens like that, but I can't remember because typically they get a lot of rain in the run up to it. That'd be true, yeah, because it's April, and it's it's always in it's always in great it's always green where some of the US Open courses have been burnt. But yeah, the the accessibility to Augusta is the hardest of all by far, invite only. Uh, or you can inherit a ticket. Oh no, sorry, I don't think you can anymore. That might have been the policy up to a few years ago. But yeah, you you could not get a ticket. It's me. What's the capacity? I mean, so uh, on, in comparison, the ten years ago, the capacity of the British Open was there was no limit on tickets, but there was you were in between on the weekends. You're about fifty thousand people a day, fifty seven fifty thousand spectators a day. I don't know. I don't know if they release numbers either. Right. Okay. But obviously, there's not obviously can't be that many. Augusta seemed to be very private. Yeah, they seem to be the pitim- the the quintessential example of an old boys club. It's yeah, it says like I said, I was going to look it up, and I've looked it up. Um, it says unlike most private clubs which operate as non profits, Augusta National is pro profit corporation, and it does not disclose its income, holdings, membership list, or ticket sales. Does it not have to? No, not in America. Because a p- private club, <laughs> not not America. They're rich. <laughs> They can do whatever they want. They know they usually have about three hundred members at a time. Three hundred members. Yeah, they're usually like former presidents, former like secretaries of state, and so on. It co- it's, the membership cost is believed to be between ten and thirty thousand dollars, with less than ten thousand dollars per year for annual dues. Notable current members include Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. I'm sure, Warren gets a lot of rounds in. <laughs> yep. Pat Hayden, the Condoleezza Rice, former US Secretary of State, and Rex Tillerson, former. I've seen Secretaries of State; they just keep rolling in, don't they? So, is, can any the, these three hundred members? Is that the only people that can play this course? Must can't be. Must be a, bit, a lot of private. No, it is not. That's that's the only people who can play the course. I think. I think. I think they may get a guest. They might get a guest. I'm not sure. I mean, these people are going to be people that would never play the course. Past winners also. Well, it is, it is. It's just. It's just a club. It's. It's. It's like. It's. A, it's. A, it's like an old-fashioned club where you you could play golf or you can just sit around and talk all the time and not have to worry about anybody else being around. Yeah, it's like your gentlemen's clubs in London with women. I know, but I, I had this conversation with my fiance after I had that um, when I played a couple of weeks. Courses. Why you don't really hear many people our age playing the game anymore. And I think it's a, a big factor, possibly down to time. But she just made the comment that there's not many people that play it our age at all, which is which is very true, especially especially generation younger than us, even more so. And I think it's just I think it depends on the community. But we know there's less there's 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 dwindling junior members throughout golf clubs all over Britain. Yeah, there is, but I think outside of Scotland. But just because of the prevalence of golf courses, and imagine go- playing golf is a lot more popular in sort of the higher ranks of society, just because of the reasons we've mentioned, sort of high barriers to entry, or the perceived high barriers to entry. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I, where I work, uh, I see when I'm walking to and from work, I see um, young people quite regularly walking past with golf clubs and golf bags and they're either going to play golf or they're just finished and they've come back and generally it's like threes or fours of them so like I say it all depends where you are depends on the prevalency of it but yeah my my original point was going to be that they're in such a time hungry world that the people don't have the time I don't think as much before, or maybe it's because of this age in the in the twenties that we don't really see it. Because, I mean, I bought. I've been a member. I'm reluctant to get a membership because to play at the weekend takes me a full day out of my normal schedule, and to play during the week is almost impossible if you have a full time job. So it's very hard in that respect. And yeah, if you want to play, you want to play a game of golf with your friends, you're taking five to six hours out of your normal schedule. I don't, yeah, but I don't think that's a barrier for younger people because, I mean, the time's almost like it's, it's a lot less of a scarce commodity when you're <laughs> at school. It's less scarce when you're retired, which is obviously why you get, which is what's associated to it. Well, yeah, I mean, those, yeah, and I, I adventure, I'd venture that those are the two demographics that golf courses are still dominated by is the. <laughs> Under 18s or under 19s and uh, retired. And the night shift workers. Yeah, because that, that made up pretty much the, the entirety of the people I saw on the course when I was younger. Outside of a Saturday. I think, I think like Neil says about time, I think we're also time-driven now. Uh, you could have all the time in the world and, you'll st- and you can still feel like you're running out of time for, for no other reason other than the fact that we've been conditioned to think so so that the prospect of giving up five six hours at a time and being away from you know life like neil says shove your shove your shove your phone in your bag for the duration of the game and then you don't need to worry about anything it's that's not so easy for everybody but i mean if you're playing like on your own a bounce round and even if you're hitting a couple of balls you could get around in most courses in four hours easily like at a leisurely pace, yeah. But if there's a hold up, but but obviously, be this is this must be a point because the golf community has recognised this. That's why they've brought in all these new, quick, fast these different rules to speed the game up. At see, I I don't know how much the rules were brought in for the benefit of the pro game or the amateur game because it, reducing the amount of time you can look through ball. That only helps by two minutes. is isn't helping the amateur game very much, I don't think. And putting with the flag in, I mean, I, I never thought slow play was an issue playing golf. Like, a massive issue. Like, And everyone was always like, you were waving people through it, whereas you, you don't, you can't wave, I've never seen them do wave somebody through <laughs> in a championship, like in a, a professional golf. Whereas in, in the, at the club, it happens all the time. Yeah, but in championship golf, championship golf, you've got ball spotters. You, your, your, your game's cared for. Yeah, exactly. So, one person looking for a ball, or two people in the group looking for a ball, is a mass, massive difference. So, reducing it from five minutes to three minutes is pretty much a non-issue for a professional golfer because they've got the spotters there. They can't find it in three minutes, but it's very unlikely to find it in five minutes. Whereas in a normal game, that's literally 60% of what you could the ground you could cover <laughs> in five minutes 
Whereas all that ground's already covered when you've got four spotters and however many crowd looking for it. So I don't know how much was it it was to benefit the amateur game versus the pro game. I th- I think it was to benefit the amateur game. I think it was as well, but I don't think all of the initiatives were. I think it has benefited am- or it will benefit the amateur game. But in terms of the slope, in terms of speeding up, I don't think that benefits it. Making it less complex, I think, benefits the amateur game. Because they put with a pin in. I've never seen any pro put with a pin in. Lots of them do. Deschambeau, as soon as the rule changed, Deschambeau said, I'm putting every putt with a pin in. Every putt? Yeah. I mean, he hasn't, but I mean... Is that before COVID or after? Well, they can remove the pin now, pros. Well, it's good to have that luxury. I was the only, I was the only person that used to play... Last year, when I used to play that course, I used to play twice a week. I was the only person, and I, I used to be adamant I'd punt with the pin out, and they hated me for it. A lot of amateurs, anecdotally, I heard, who kept the pin in, like the uh, golf clubs across the country, just kept the pin in, which it makes sense because it increases your percentage of holding the putt for a start. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's, it, it does save. T- it does. My 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 argument was. I, there were two rounds that I kept the pin in, and both times in each round, the butt was in the centre of the pin, it hit the pin and jumped out. Right, well I'm talking about studies that have examined thousands and thousands of putts, but if you're saying that your two putts went out, then I think, yeah, you should you should, should submit a question to that study it was done. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, think, I think you should rephrase it as your experience of it is. <laughs> No, but if if the wind if the wind is blowing towards you, and the pin is bent towards you, that is giving you a disadvantage because if that ball can hit that pin, if it's bent, yeah, fair enough. If the pin's ident like it's right in the center, vertical, but if there's wind pulling the flag towards you, then there's a chance that that ball might hit the pin and drop. drop um. Well, it's always a chance. That well, anyway, but I think what they were saying is under all circumstances. Is it, sorry, not under on average, punt with the pin in is better than punt with the pin out. And surely such variables, if you're a professional, you take into account anyway. I mean, you think of the way that they study the ground and they study the lay and they, you know, they, yeah, they study everything. So I'm sure if they're going, oh, the winds is blowing that direction, and the pins and the flags slightly bending, then I need to take that into account. But the the. They'll also look at it for a perception type of thing. Like they might, they might see the pin as a distra- if they've got the center with a three foot putt. They might see this pin as a distraction, and so they'll take it out, despite it being more beneficial, like statistically for the pin to be in. If you know what I mean. We're not allowed to do that now, though. That's obviously because there's a pandemic now. But there's if the if the pins if there's a forty mile an hour gale force wind in St Andrews and the pin's blowing towards you, you've still got and you've got a three foot putt head onto the pin, you've still got to get that putt without taking the pin out. If you've got the flag blowing it right over your ball because of the sun and the shadow, you've still got to hit that putt with the pin in. Yeah, I mean that's a that's because of the pandemic, that's not necessarily because of the new rules. Because you the new rules you could take up the pin out. Neil, I think you've kind of just uh, proved the issue about it sort of being a, a poshy kind of sport when, oh, I've got to do it. Oh, no. And then the sun and then the shadow and life so hard and first world problems. The fact he, the fact he had to go to the old course of St. Andrews to make a, come up with a scenario. Exactly. Well done. <laughs> There's not many other places you'll be playing golf in 40 mile an hour wins. Well, I don't know. 
There's not many places in Scotland you wouldn't probably find it at some point. Dan, you'll you'll find that shadow over your bottle is actually a huge. It's, it's notoriously known even in professionals. If there's a shadow, if you're putting through your shadow, it's very very off-putting for your shot. <laughs> so will we will we move to the British Open part of this this talk? Having not fully discussed Augusta, <laughs> by the way, but we'll move on. British Open. Dan, we've, we've all been. I've been 26 times. Neil, you must have been close to above or below that. Yeah, I've been around about that. Probably just below that. Maybe 25 or 24. Dan, you've been what? Once. Once now, St Andrews. Between <laughs> once now, I can't, you can't get lower than once unless you've got null. And, you, and, you'd, and you, you'd already made it clear that we've all been, so I had to go at least once. I remember that we've all we all started at once, Dan. <laughs> Look where we are now. We were all one years old, though, <laughs> or zero. In in all fairness, though, I think I think the conditions I put down and Gillian agreed was we'll only go when it's at St Andrews, so at least that keeps my numbers limited. Well, you got two years, twenty twenty two. Next year, it's next year, isn't it? No, it's, no, it's St George's next year now. Oh, of course, because I saw that the tickets of. I saw. I saw they were doing some. I got an email today through from the open saying about tickets. Uh, so Dan, you said you prefer watching the TV. I think it. Well, it's been pretty much a summer holiday for us since we were born. Uh, going to the open in the various locations around about the UK. Um, I mean, St Andrews, Turnbury, Christie, well, St George's, even Hoylake now, Southport. I uh, Southport. I really suffered then going to the Dordogne and Italy and Germany and the Netherlands. I really slummed it when I could have been in Lytham St. Anne's. There's me thinking I could have been having a good time. Yeah, there's very, very, very crowds. But I mean, having gone, when did, so the first one I remember is 94, which is at Turnberry. When was, when was the first one you remember? No. It's my first open. I remember would be my the first one I remember was was uh, was actually Lytham. Was that ninety four? That was ninety six. We weren't there. No, uh, when what was it, Deval Parnovic? What one was that? Deval Parnovic was two thousand one. Was that not Lytham? No, it wasn't because we missed two. Lytham, the first Lytham we went to was the one L's one in twenty twelve because we missed the one in ninety six at Lehman one and we missed the one after that because we couldn't get digs. Southport, no, yeah, it was Southport. What was South? Southport was Birkdale. That was that was my first vivid memories. Was Southport? That was two thousand and one. You were ten years old. I know, but I I, rem- I just I just remember walking around the on the last day watching Deval Parnovic running back and forward to the scoreboard into the course. Yeah, it was two thousand and one. Well, it was nine, and it was Nicholas Fast. It wasn't yes for Parnovic. Parnovic was in contention though. No, Parnovic was in contention in ninety seven with Justin Leonard and ninety four with Nick Price. Maybe Parnovic had a howler in the last day, but he was in the final set of groups. Uh oh sorry, yeah, sorry, it was tied tied ninth seventy one he shot. Yeah, he was in the final groups. I think I think he was might have been in the final group with Deval, but he'd had a bad one. No, he was he was tied fifth in the la- gone into the last day. But you're right, yeah. So that that is small. Okay, right. I will admit that small flashbacks. But the I would probably say the one I enjoyed most 
was it was actually when I spent a lot of time on my own watching golfers. And I, I think I watched three golfers a day. And I'd always watch Tom Watson uh, with, with my godfather. And I would always watch Sabatini. And I'd, I'd always follow Tiger every single day. Those three players, and I really enjoyed that. It was Hoylake in 2006. And obviously top top with Tiger win. But I think that's the most amount of golf course. I really enjoyed that golf course. It was really good for spectating. That's that's probably the one that one of the most vivid in my memory. So sorry, what was your one again? I just asked the first one you remember. So t- the first one you remember was nine years old. <laughs> you surely remember being there before that. <laughs> oh my god! It's like listening to Gardener's World if they did audio. Well, I remember tuning in '98, but for the wrong reasons. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I know, like, I remember only from traumatic experiences, not from the game of golf. So your first, your first event-free one was 2001, <laughs> right? I mean, the question was going to be: you must have seen a difference between when we first started going, or what you first remember, and recently, the, the more recent ones. And what would you call out as the major differences? It's not, there's nowhere near the same atmosphere. No, I'd agree. There wasn't the well, even in 2005. Just I suppose there was kind of it was just it depends who you were cheering for as well because if Tiger when Tiger won in 2005 there was just such a buzz about it and I remember I would remember myself standing up on top of a wheelie bin up and climbing in next to the grandstand just to see Tiger hold the last putt and just the crowds were just unbelievable. A lot of punters, because for all, all the years we went, there was people we we saw every year that we just knew, like in the sort of group. Yeah, less people actually walking around the course, which is good, I guess, because you get to see more golf, but there is definitely less people walking around the course. And it is a lot more expensive. And you can't take your own drinking, which you, that was uh, you could always do that until a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, well, it started with when you, they banned the box crates, because you used to take a crate in to, st- to sit behind the crowd, and you stand on the crate so you can see over them. Do you remember that? I do, yeah. <laughs> Been stomped with them before. And then people have the fold-up ones that they put in their bag. Yeah, or the the water coolers that they use. <laughs> or the food coolers. But yeah, and there's a lot more, I guess it's just a lot more family-friendly. There's putting greens, and now there's whiskey tents, and MasterCard tents, and yeah, it is a lot more hospitality-driven. A lot more shopping-driven merchandise. Yeah, and I don't think that helps image either, because, I mean, you're still getting under 16s and for free, but to accompany them, you need to pay hundreds of pounds for a weekly ticket, or about £100 for a daily ticket, <laughs> whatever it is these days. I still don't know why the weekend is more expensive than the weekdays. Because they're more popular. But the Thursday's the best day. Yeah, but people are working. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, that's fair point. But, I mean, if you really want to take a day off, I'm sure most people can't. Yeah, fair point. Well, look, yeah. Unless you work in night shifts. <laughs> yeah, it's the first thing you do going straight for the night shift for the 5am tee-offs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Get three rounds in and then head back. What do you think's... I mean, that's one thing that's changed, but I think that's been driven by what we can come on to next. Dan, you can enter the conversation again at this point as well. He's already mentioned Tiger Woods. I think we we owe owe it to golf to at least spend ten minutes on the great man. 
So you'd heard about Tiger Woods? I, I, are you asking me? I assume you're asking me. I've, I'd, I'd, I'd heard of him. I knew him more for his reputation off the course than on the course. Oh, that's Dan. That's 2012, 2013, isn't it? Yeah, but the, the whole point is, is that he he never interested me before. I wasn't interested in golf. Yeah, I, I don't really have anything to say to him. I don't really have an opinion. <laughs> great, thanks for that, Dan. <laughs> um, well, doubtedly the greatest golf player of the last forty years. I mean, look, because he's gonna end of his career, but he's in the last thirty years. He transformed the game of golf in a way that I don't think he came along at the right time in terms. And I think he he's fed into that sort of corporate corporate hospitality feel to the open lot, not necessarily like atmosphere, but. The change in direction of golf because I mean the price sums are just ludicrous now compared to when we were growing up. I mean it's happened in all sports, but like football, footballers were getting paid a lot when we were younger, and golfers were getting paid nowhere near as much. Now golfers are getting paid quite well. I'm not sure Tiger Woods was getting. I, I guess this was heavily done by endorsements, but he was tens of millions a year. Yeah, but he brought that on. Yeah, because he was getting sixty million of endorsements from Nike at the time. I guess prize money was around about a million eight hundred thousand is when I started taking notes of that, which probably was around the early two thousands. Is my guess. I was trying to approach the million when we're getting into the mid two thousands. Right here we go. <laughs> Winner share. So, in so pre Tiger Woods, we'll call it nineteen ninety five. 125,000 daily got for winning St Andrews. £125,000. A drop in the ocean for winning the biggest one of the big four. When Tiger won in 2005, it was 720000 And now it's obviously almost £2 million. Shane Lowry won $1.9 oh, so million. They're going up as fast as London house prices. So there, there's two things you should have gone into in the early nineties. One was London house price, one London property. You know, there was a professional golf circuit. The point is, he absolutely transformed golf. And more, more ways than that. I mean, is John Daly was the biggest driver at the time, uh, highest first in the tour and driving distance. And he came in. I mean, John Daly's a fairly sizable chap. He's got a lot of power behind the ball. Whereas Tiger's a bit more. But that I guess that that. Very high inflation rate in golf probably came in because the amount of fandom and money Tiger brought into the game. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's almost solely due to that, I'd imagine. Yeah, he, the amount of young, young sports people that looked up to him, thought that would got into golf purely because of him is huge. Yeah, and there, there was that thing when Woods came in, and. Uh, people who aren't familiar with golf have been uh, amazed by this stat, but remember there was the Tiger proofing that went on for the courses. So Tiger's game was basically just drive it as far as you can. Um, I'll chip it out and make birdie because I'm and because my divine play and my short game is so good. And the courses actively trying to bring the fairways in to almost nullify his game because he's winning tournaments by ridiculous amounts. Like he won the Masters by 12 shots. He won the US Open by 15 shots. The rest of them by at least high single-figure victory margins. And so they, of course, he's actually actively trying to 
set the courses up to play against this game. Which makes sense, unfortunately, but yeah. But there's no one there's there's no one has been since then what Tiger is even still to this game. Still, there's no one that there's not the fear. It was always it was always the fear that players got when they played with Tiger. Most of them just crumbled. Yeah, I mean, if you look at his record, it was fourteen leads he'd had going to the last round of a major. He'd won fourteen times. Now, if you compare that to the tour average, it's somewhere it's less than forty percent. If you've got somebody leading going into the last round of a tournament, they win less than forty times, forty percent of the time. Whereas Tiger won on golf's biggest tournaments, fourteen times he held the lead going into the last round, and fourteen times he won. It's just, I mean, it's overall, if you include non-major tournaments, it's still ninety percent he's winning, <laughs> leading in the last round. And I believe he still holds the most PGA Tour victories. Tied with Sam Snead, yeah. So yeah, um, absolute bam off of the game. He's still going strong. Won a major last year. <laughs> Outstandingly won a major last year. It's the only thing he did. <laughs> yep. Only three more to go until he catches Jack Nicholas for the all-time tally of 18. What's his, what's his, what's his odds to complete that mission? A lot longer than it was last year, I think. I don't know how long they are, but I reckon I reckon you're getting this five to one. It's not it's not good value. No, definitely not. There you have it, folks. <laughs> if you're ever thinking about getting into golf, now is the time. You've all the information you need. Well, thank you very much, guys. That was a really, really stimulating and truly inspiring coverage of the wonderful, wacky world of golf. And I think from there we're gonna briskly move on to our board game segment which this week is Gregor Lords of Waterdeep So, Lords of Waterdeep was released in the year 2012, uh, designed by Peter Lee and Roddy Thompson. It is a worker placement game and it is set in the Dungeons and Dragons universe. Uh, so, a little bit of a, t- not a tie in, but like a segue in from, from last week. Typically, it takes between about an hour and two hours to play, and on the expansions and players you've got in play. Uh, this is one that we've not, I have. But we've never played it in person. We've only played it since lockdown, the online lockdown sessions. And so you just won't have the sort of, not full appreciation, but the the you've not had the benefit of sitting down to it and actually playing with it tactilely and moving the pieces about and so on. It's just on the online app, which is a fantastic implementation. Uh, but it's obviously quicker... Yeah, so what do you guys think? Go on, Dan. God, God. I really enjoy it. I I really like it. I think it's a really fun game. Like you say, we've not played it in person yet, but I think I think that's been some of the 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 best eve the best games of the games night evenings in lockdown. I think that was one of the best games we've played. I really enjoyed it. Great fun, good laugh. Really it is quite it's quite a there's a lot of depth to the game, but I would have said it's quite easy to pick up. 
I think that the time limit as well is quite good because there's a there's a time limit in play as well for how long you can take it for your total total time playing on the app. Yeah, on the app, which is really good, especially when Neil forgets it's his turn and then just leave him sitting there for a minute till we decide to remind him. Uh, and I think we've had a lot. Of la- I think generally, I think it's the game that's elicited the most laughter and frivolity. Of the, of the games, yeah. That, I mean, maybe I should have given a bit more context on how you actually play it. So you're each. I, sp- I suppose the theme is that you're each in charge of a different faction within the city of Waterdeep. Um, you're given different quests, and you can take on further additional quests. And you need to recruit different agents to then carry out those quests. And those agents are essentially just sort of cubes on the board. Uh, that you so some might require a rogue or a. Um, a fighter or mage or so on, and these are different cubes. You would then complete a mission by collecting the requisite number of cubes or or workers or not workers rather of um sorry agents for your for mission. You cash them in, you get the points. But you've also got a, a secret uh, a secret identity, and so for the you get points at the end for the amount of certain types of quests that you've done or uh, built if you're the builder, the, the buildings that you've built. And so it's got that. As well as that, there's also these intrigue cards that you can use to play on other people to sort of set them back or to advance your own your own plans. And so there is that bit of sort of take that and that you can play these cards on different people if they're, well, don't necessarily if, you're, if they're ahead, but if you just don't like that person... <laughs> Seems to be the sort of just of it when we were playing, or if they'd won the last game or something, or if they if they'd played it before and nobody else had something like that. Well, I think I would say that one of the traditional methods that we use during games, because invariably every games night you introduce another game to us, and because you usually know the rules better than we do, and conveniently introduce the rules as we go along, uh, we usually usually get <coughs> you usually end up being ganged up on. And, you know, if you don't win, it's usually because everyone's ganged up on you and forgotten about somebody else. Yeah, it's it's because, I mean, I couldn't possibly, if some of these games, I couldn't, I can try to tell you as much as I can, but there's no point in telling you absolutely everything and every sort of exception, as well as telling you when these sorts of events arise. But I always get criticised if halfway through a game it says, oh, if I'd known that, then (laughs) I would have played the game completely differently. Well, it, it, it invariably though, invariably though, it is true. We we would it would have been good to have known it at the time, but like you say, you have you hold all the cards. I could have tell and told you everything, yeah. And, and sometimes I do tell you. I, I often have told you something you're contesting, but it's just you haven't listened, <laughs> or there's it, a lot to take in. Well, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, you were good when we when we played Lord of the, um, Lord of the Rings. Um, Games, Games of Thrones. When we played Game of Thrones, you gave us the the crib sheets, and I, I and you know I was quite pleased because I think of of everyone else who joined, I was the only one that really watched the videos and actually read what we were meant to be doing. <laughs> so you know, you gave us you 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 facilitated our learning, but you know maybe we just choose not to pay attention. Yeah, I try my best, and then the immediate reply I got after the crib sheets went out was, "This is never getting used," and then. It was always used because all the answers that you had <laughs> were on the, that sheet. Yeah, and people forgot they even had it. But we digress. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, your thoughts. 
Uh, this was this is quite. This is, I think this was the first lockdown game session, family game session we had, and we no no we played it a few times, but the, we were first introduced to it in the first in the first gaming session, and I spent a whole afternoon learning the game to try and gain the upper hand, and <laughs> so I actually, I actually uh, downloaded the game on Steam and I, I played three tutorial. I played the tutorial twice and an online game to try and gain the upper hand and I think I did the same with Terraform and Mars but that's a different game um, but yeah it was it's a good game Gregor clearly you had the strategies down first I don't know if I do on this one I like to play every game differently on this one like it just depends what I get and what I go for do you? it doesn't that does not come across very apparent your strategy seems to be get the get get the buildings. You want always a couple of buildings at the start. And well, but the first game we played, you went very heavy on the buildings. That was the building. That was my secret identity, though. <laughs> yeah, but then no one used it. So because no one knew, because no one was playing it, no one knew how to play it, so it backfired. Yeah, yeah, I know. When the yeah the first game was a bit ropey because there was a couple of people that never never even seen the board before, but I, I think yeah it was a, when everyone knows it's it's probably one of my favourites. I think that's a problem with playing it online though because we've played a few online, and it lulls you into false sense of security when you're playing these games online because when you play it face to face, you need to know what's going on, like because you're physically moving the pieces. Whereas in this, it does all the counting for you. It gives you the pieces that you're due to get, and so you, you kind of don't need to be on top of the on top of the rules as you would need to be in person. Yeah, you can go. You can you can take your turn, go and get a drink, come back, not realize what has gone on, and then make your turn. Yeah, I know, but you can even make your own turn and not really fully appreciate what's going on. Whereas if you've done it in person, you can you can physically see these cubes come to you, and you can see. You've moved your own pieces here and here. That was usually that's usually the game of the night when I have to change rooms as well. So I usually have to go downstairs at that point, and I do because it's on my phone, so I can just see when it's my turn. I make my moves, and then you, you, then I just wait for my next turn. So this, so that's the that's always the thing, though, isn't it? With online games, is you have that the the, the opportunity to delay and to multitask in theory. So I think that that, that is definitely. I mean, it's an advantage in a way because you can get away with it. Yeah, I think it does. You do lose something though, because I mean, this is straight off topics, but with Terraform and Mars, like that almost plays itself in some ways because we're making moves. And I, like I've played it a few times, and for the first few times I played it, I don't fully appreciate, like, understand what's going on. You know what I mean? Because the computer just works out for me. That's it. It's not. It's not as immersive. I think I think it lacks that that immersive quality when you're not face to face, and you know we have like I say it's probably been the most banterous of the games we've played, but it's not the same as as having that banter because the banter's always better in person as well. Where we always, I mean, every game we play, we have a good laugh. I mean, we wouldn't be doing this podcast probably without, without some of that banter that we've had. And I think I think the I mean the listeners haven't ha- heard the the true pleasure of our um, g- 
Games Night ramblings. This is a very watered down version. I mean, that's uh, that's definitely after the watershed kind of thing. Yeah, there's one, one point I think is important. Well, it's, it's not as very it's not very important, but the one thing I do enjoy about Waterdeep is the sound effects on the online version are amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> Just at random points. <laughs> yeah. Entertaining in its in itself. So so Gregor, I think we should do some scores. So do you wanna give us your score on the whole thing? Yeah, uh, I mean I'll I mean I'll, I'll, I think we should start doing this as well actually, because I've got some of this information from uh I mean a well known board game site, boardgamegeek dot com. And they've got a ranking of all the all the board games that have ever been released and loads of information on them. Uh, loads of reviews. So if you're looking for any sort of uh, database or touch point for for researching any of these, then definitely go to that in the first instance. Uh, but th- that uh, that website ranks this game overall as sixty third. So it's within the top one, the top one hundreds, quite coveted in terms of the board can keep the top one hundred. And so sixty three is excellent standing. I'd probably give it an eight out of ten, so four out of five stars. Oh, we're going. We're, ch- we're changing the way we're doing them, are we? Oh, we're now going to tens. Do, do you feel that we? Do you feel that we need a a a broader variable range for? Yeah, because that gives us twenty touch points with the halves compared to. So you're saying eight, eight, eight out of ten? Eight out of ten, yeah. Okay, then Neil, what were you giving it? Well, I was actually swithering between. My classic three and a half, which I think I've given every game so far, and four. So it's either going to be a seven or an eight. Seven and a half. The new scale permits that, Neil. <laughs> well, I was thinking of seven and a half because it's a good game. It, it does take a bit to get your teeth into. But once everybody understands the game fully, it's it's a very fun game to play and... It's enjoyable because there's only limited spaces in the board and other players can steal that and this rotating turn. So I'm going to give that a 4 out of 5. Well, I'm going to give that an 8 out of 10. Dan? I think I think for all the reasons I've already said, the enjoyability, the, 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 the interpersonal qualities and the good fun we've had with it, you know, so it's a good, good, wholesome game. Plenty of depth without being too complicated, so I'd I'd give it an eight out of ten as well. This one's this one's a winner. So thank you very much, Gregor, for that. Good game, enjoyed by all, and I think that's always a plus when when it is a game that we can all enjoy and we all sort of share similar opinions on it. And from there, we're gonna move swiftly. We're gonna bounce back onto you, Gregor, with a top ten. Gregor, what are you gonna give us this week for this time around for your top ten? So this week, I mean, uh, this is probably deserving a wider conversation about <laughs> does this continue? Because I struggle, uh, as you find out by the title of this a second, I struggled with coming up with the top ten this month, this this fortnight, and so this, <laughs> I because it's difficult to get away from the pop culture and food. So this time I went with food, and it is top ten fast food menu items. Is this current or all time? Current. Like standard, I, I'm not. I'm, there's no specials in here. 
Yeah, if if you were to walk into the place today, this is what you could probably find. Yeah, because I mean, it would just be if if it was all time, it would just be a list of McDonald's special burgers. <laughs> right, honorable mention. I think I've only got one. Well, it's kind of two. It's the wraps out this like the Saver wraps out KFC. It's like the it's a small wrap, one forty nine. They've got the spicy one in the barbecue. A friend and I, high high school, we once our our dream at that point and probably still is, was to place a wager on how much, because we were discussing how much we thought we could each eat of these small wraps, and we came up with a bet in that we just keep eating them. We will just keep ordering them, like, maybe three at a time and down to one at a time, and whoever couldn't finish them pays. So the loser pays for all the wraps. <laughs> I, think, I think it's really reassuring to the listeners to know that your sense of adventure has obviously been with you for quite some time. Yeah, so that's still a dream of mine. It's funny you had someone to play that with, because every, no, there's no one that would ever play that game with me. <laughs> well, we never... We never it, we, it wasn't me that came up with it. We, we only hypothesised. We didn't actually follow through. But, I mean, I'm sure they still serve them. They are dearer now. I think they were £1 at the time. But, I mean, the premise stands, I feel. You could do with this. You could do that with the number of these. I've heard this. I've heard cheeseburger challenge. Ten cheeseburgers. Well, that used to be more order at Burger King because at uni because it was seventy nine p for a cheeseburger and sixty nine p for a hamburger. So two cheeseburgers and two hamburgers was three pound. If you can believe that, ridiculous value. It's not too much dearer than that now. And then Thatcher came along and shut down the mines. <laughs> no, I think it still gets the less four pound, but yeah. So first one. McDonald's, Big Mac, classic, number 10. I was never, we never ate that much McDonald's when we were here, but having come to later in life, I've come to appreciate the Big Mac, and it's because of the student card. You used to get like one ninety nine a Big Mac and chips or something. It was it was ideal, or your free McFlurry, something to that effect, or it might be the snap facts. But anyways, yeah, it's a superb value. It's a classic, and I can see why it's a classic. Everything about it's great. The bun is light. I mean, the meat's terrible, but the meat's alright. <laughs> the meat's 100% beef. British as well. Yeah, I know. That beef is 100% beef. Did we raise this? Did I tell you about this? Did we raise this in the last podcast? About the 100% beef? Uh, I think I think that was mentioned, actually, yeah. It's a hundred percent beef, but it doesn't actually mean the burger's a hundred percent beef. The beef's a hundred percent beef. No, they they created a they created a company called a hundred percent beef. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's just does not. So let's take that out. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> Big Mac, guys, thoughts? You must have a Big Mac. Love them. Yeah, love them. You love them, and you'll see the uh, from my choices later on. Uh, the McDonald's I frequented to most was on, actually on the way back from the gym uh, at my last place. And yeah, I was always looking for things that were packed in protein and calories in a good ratio. And the Big Mac, 515 calories with, uh, I think, around about 35 grams of protein. So it was, a, it was actually a good a good post-gym snack and very tasty. I remember a friend used to get, when we went to McDonald's after the gym, he used to get several burgers, like my chicken sandwiches and burgers, and I used to throw away a few of the buns and just stack them up <laughs> in one bun <laughs> to get his protein in. We never even mentioned the burger sauce on the Big Mac. So that's, uh, 
Oh uh, well, yeah, actually, because we'll stock up at the hundred percent beef. But yeah, light bun, hundred percent beef. You got one of your five a day, the lettuce, and the burger sauce. Signature burger sauce, McDonald's. Yeah, the closest thing to I've seen is out Aldi, because a lot of places do this burger sauce that's the rip off the Big Mac. But the closest ones I've seen is out Aldi. Anyway, yeah. So number nine, Subway, foot long. Italian herbs and cheese, bread, meat feast. So th- this is this is something I only became aware of recently because it used to be, it, it could have been anything that's up with meatball marinara, steak and cheese, tuna melt, BMT, everything's a winner. But after seeing the meat feast, I've not looked back. It's basically three different types of ham or meat and like halved meatballs with the sauce. But it's on. It's cheaper than the premiums, which is meatball marinara and the steak and cheese. Yeah, exactly. Uh huh. Yeah, and the Italian is that essentially the Italian selection, which is also the same, but with the meatballs. Yeah, with spicy cheese bellied. Yeah, I've not been to some Subway. Seems to have died a death recently, but I, I, I yeah, I always went to Subway's a great place. That you can always go extra and eat extra meat. A lot of good selection, but not not a popular place these days. I think I went I went once at the start of the year, but my favourite one would have to be the steak and cheese. Dan, you a fan of Subway? I am a fan of Subway. Yes, I am. Yeah, but I've never tried that one, so I have to keep my eye for that one. Yeah, look it out. I've never yeah the meatballs with the deli hams. Yeah, I don't I don't know where I first found it, but look it out in the meat feast. It's called. But yeah, moving on to number eight. Back to McDonald's again. A frequent feature on this list. McChicken sandwich. Or chicken mayo. Oh, that is a that is a, a good a good call you made there, Gregor, because these two things are very hard to decipher from. One one the fantastic flavour and two, and the second the chicken mayo with the un unrivaled value. Yes, it's a mayo it's a mayo chicken. Sorry, not the McChicken sandwich. Because a McChicken sandwich is several pounds, if I'm not mistaken, isn't it? Yeah, £2.29 last time I checked. But the chicken mayo in the NM Pence is phenomenal. Yeah, that's that's the one I'm talking about, because it's almost the same sandwich. <laughs> Except it's about 40% of the cost. So don't get don't fall on that trap, sorry. Yeah, not the McChicken sandwich, the mayo chicken, or chicken mayo, or whatever your local McDonald's sells as. It's called the mayo chicken everywhere. Oh, is it? And and if you ever call it the the chicken mayo, they they correct you at the time. Well, in my experience, <laughs> one mayo chicken then, not a chicken mayo, not one mayo chicken then. Chicken mayo will make more sense because chicken's a dominant ingredient. Well, yeah, exactly. That's and I would always think a chick, chicken and mayo sandwich, but no, it's a mayo chicken. Mayo chicken, you'd expect some sort of mayonnaise chicken blend, like coronation chicken. Dan, you must have had this as well. I haven't. You haven't? Nettingham Pence, check it out. I will. I've not ever had anything chicken out at McDonald's. Not even a chicken nugget? Oh, I've had it. Well, uh, chicken. Mm. No, I've, I've had their nuggets. I've had their nuggets and whatever thought they come. But not, I mean, like, not like a burger. I've not like a chicken burger. Right. Okay. Chicken Legend's also good. Again, I don't know where the McChicken sandwich sits, actually, because you've got the Chicken Legend, which is their their main chicken burger. It's a premium one, though. That is, I know, but it's it's priced as 
a normal burger, like a like a like a typical burger. The McChicken sandwich is the original that has stood the test of time. That's I think that's what it is. It's like their it's like their quarter pounder versus their double cheeseburger because a quarter pounder's like ridiculously priced, isn't it? Yeah, this is one pie instead of two half pies. Moving on to the next one then. KFC, bit of change of pace. Number seven, Zinger Tower Burger. Presumably all the way to KFC. Oh, absolutely. Had some at the weekend. Uh, so this is the this is the sort of marriage of their Zinger Burger, which is a spicy salad, and their sort of spicy fillet. But then you've got the tower aspect, which is basically a hash brown on top of the burger. Along with your usual cheese, mayo and lettuce. I didn't ever actually realise there was a hash brown on the tower burger. Yeah, that's what the so the tower is. Tower, the tower portion of the burger is the, it's the hash brown. If you had a tower burger, because you can't miss it. I've had the Zinger tower burger, definitely. I didn't, I didn't realise the hash brown was involved, though. Yeah. Potato on bun. Uh, that that was I always go for the Zinger Burger Zinger Wrap uh, KFC unless I went for a particular reason of trying out a limited edition burger, which has happened a couple of times. I, I rarely see limited edition burgers at KFC. I, you had to double down, but apart from that, they don't come along very often. Not very often, but when they do come, they're they're usually special. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's yeah, there's something else. <laughs> Dan, you had this. I have. Very tasty. Number six. If I had any sense, it's been a place higher, but five guys. And, I mean, there's not very many op- very many menu options at five guys. It's just a standard burger with, I mean, you can choose what you want on it. Usually go with it. Fresh jalapenos. One of the few places I've seen with fresh jalapenos over the sort of pickled ones you get. Yeah, barbecue sauce, lettuce, tomato, just usual. A bit of onion. Eleven toppings, I believe, to choose from. At least. I think that might be the standard, but there's even more than that. Sure. I mean, they're all well-constructed burgers, but for what you get on a Pancakes burger, it's the, the best constructed. Like, if you go to a restaurant and get the same quality burger, it's always poorly constructed, and you have to chop it up and things, but with a Five Guys, you can actually hold it and eat it. So it's kind of like the, kind of like, after, after a round at Augusta, you go to a Five Guys for a good time. I mean, Five Guys is just the creme de la creme of burgers. Of fast of fast food burgers, it's just the top. Not only tastes, but just in construction as well, I think. I must add, I had a Shake Shack at the beginning of the year, which rivaled, they must have used the same cooking techniques, the classic. Well, Five Guys is famous for peanut oil and their fries, their calorie-dense fries, and large, very large, por- never-ending portions. But yeah, I, I, the first time I had a Five Guys, I was absolutely blown away. Yeah. It is, it is a lot dearer, but I'd say it's as good as any other burger you could buy for that price. Number five, back to McDonald's. This is the McFlurry. Dessert has to be a dessert in there somewhere. Has to be a dessert somewhere, and this is the dessert. This is the fast food dessert. Better than your avalanche and better than whatever the Burger King sells. McFlurry wannabes. Although... I have seen. I remember the first McFlurry I had. It was in the Metro Centre in Newcastle, and they'd been out for a few years at this point. And it was a cream egg one, still my favourite, the cream egg. And it was just I couldn't believe it was it was such a good dessert from a fast food place, like such 
that sort of ice cream, you know, the sort of really soft stuff. Was this not also was this also not a, stu- a student card staple where you got either a free ch- cheeseburger or a free McFlurry with your meal? Yeah, yeah, free McFlurry or cheeseburger. Yeah. What's your favorite McFlurries? Cream egg. I'd say I'd say cream cream egg as well, all the way. Three for cream egg. Pay seasonal as well. Uh, well, that's what makes it so special. Yeah. But they have the degree of deteriorating quality over the years, though. I don't know if it's you get less toppings or there's less ice cream or how it works, but I've definitely noticed the difference. I think it depends where you go, to be honest. Yeah, th- no, that's very true. This is probably the biggest deviation in McDonald's menu items because they are renowned for the consistency and usually they'll draw on it. But this is probably the most variable of all their menu items, I think. Going to top four, we've got four different establishments here making up the top four. So, number four, KFC. Any guesses? Popcorn chicken. Yes. Bingo. Popcorn chicken. Shut up. Popcorn chicken. KFC popcorn chicken in number four. What is wrong with you? What do you mean? You absolute... Oh, wow. They'll never let you know, Augusta, now. Better chicken nuggets. You you picked that higher than the Zinger Tower Burger. Let, let's let's hear the justification. Let's not be too let's not be too hasty. Oh, it's just delicious. Well, they they're like little, tiny little things. You can barely barely you don't even chew them. I think that helps it though. It's such a small portion because I don't think you'd eat. Because can you imagine you had a full ten piece bucket full of popcorn chicken? Tell that to McDonald's or the twenty one piece. In the 21-piece uh, nugget box. 20-piece. 20-piece, <laughs> yeah, nuggets. And nuggets are a bit bigger. But, yeah, I don't know. I've I've not had this in a while outside of a boneless banquet. I have to say. I've never, ever had it outside of a boneless banquet. These are a lot better seasoned than nuggets. The chicken nuggets, I think. They are greasier, though, which means... Which I think is benefited by the small portions. KFC in general is definitely greasier. Yeah, undoubtedly. Although the chips are a lot better nowadays. You had the chips recently? Uh, not, not had KFC in a while. Had them at the weekend. Yeah, pretty good. So, uh, thus we enter the top three. So I've got a, a left field one in number three, actually. And the, ne- the two after that, you, I mean, you'll know one. And you'll understand the other if you don't get it. But I don't know how you want to do this. We'll each go around. Uh, Neil, do you go first and Dan and me? Uh, okay, number three is a childhood favourite that I would always get, no matter what, at a fast food chain. And it is not from McDonald's, it's from Burger King. It is the Chicken Royal Sandwich, which is, well, it's so similar to what what is now... What is now known as the chicken mayo and McChicken sandwich at McDonald's, but this was a staple when I was younger. I would always, this would be my number one as a child, is the chicken royale, which is just your simple soft seeded bun with, but it's an elongated sandwich, which is, was a benefit as well, and you've got the lettuce and the mayo, and yeah, phenomenal. I would have agreed with you, but I had one of these maybe two or three years ago now. Admittedly, it was from the Waverly Burger King, which is, with maybe one exception, the worst Burger King in the world. <laughs> and so, it maybe tainted 
my view of this, but it was awful. It was a terrible, terrible sandwich. The chicken was so soft. The batter wasn't crispy. It was caked in mayo to the point where, I mean, I love mayo, but it was just, and so it really put me off. And I thought it was almost as if they changed the chicken and the batter. It's why it put me off rather than it was just a poorly constructed sandwich, but it could have just been that they don't know how to make it. <laughs> it's funny you mention that because in the Reading Burger King, I went to get the chicken royals when they brought out the chicken rib, uh, sorry, the pork rib and the triple stack burger and they brought out the triple stack chicken royale and it was this triple stack burger and I was expecting the heavens and it was this mushed, mushed up breaded nonsense. And it was, I hated it, and I was actually sick after it. I was hungover at the time, but I was sick after it. It was awful. Yeah. Well, I was drunk at the time, and you'd think that would prove my experience, but honestly, it was just, yeah, it made me feel ill between the chicken and the, the abundance of mayo. And I've not been back since. If not, it would have been on the list, but I just don't eat it anymore. I've not, I've not tainted my childhood memories by ordering it again. Uh, and, right, Dad, you're number three. My number three is, Nice, simple, McDonald's quarter pounder with cheese. There is nothing quite like having a nice, simple burger. The meat's all right. The bun's nice and soft. You know, I'm not the world's biggest fan of pickles, but I love a a pickle on a McDonald's burger. Just with a salad and the burger sauce. It's just, just, it's simple. It's simple, yet feels slightly decadent. This goes back to the point. I was talking about. So you're getting just have a look online here. Quarter pound of cheese, two pounds sixty nine for a sandwich alone, right? Double cheeseburger is one pound twenty nine. I'm fairly certain. Sorry, one pound fifty nine. It used to be one pound twenty nine, but a lot cheaper. And so, what? Why? Why do you go with the quarter pound of cheese over the cheese, double cheeseburger? Because. I like it. Why do you go to Five Guys where I look and I go, that's a burger. I can get a burger anywhere else. No, it's just... it's just. But they're exactly the same component ingredients, though, just in different ratios. Because it's what I like. Is Do you get burger sauce with the quarter pound of the cheese? Or is it the pickle pickle in the... No, it's just a Big Mac, is it not? Move on. My number three is... Now, I think I'm happy with this, but I might get criticised. As soon as I say the establishment, You'll know immediately, well, you might be wrong. There's only two options here, though. Greg's. Stay big. Sausage roll. Greg's sausage roll. Is that a fast food place? Yes. Uh, well, it's not. Yeah, I would, I would class that as fast food. Yeah, well, this was the. I've heard it called a patisserie. You'd, they'd be wrong. I'd struggle to call it a bakery as well, so yeah, I think fast food place is probably the. More like a piss takery than a patisserie. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, <laughs> that is the joke of the, the joke of the year. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that every day, any day. You give me that. Thank you, and good night. Yeah, sausage roll. We've got Stevens up here, and I know Stuart's is local as well. But the Greg sausage roll, Baines. Yeah, I don't know if I've had much sausage rolls at Baines. Eighties as well, <laughs> but yeah, sausage roll at Greg's is the best, best one around. It's the right side of greasy. <laughs> what, what what a selling point. Yeah, and it's uh, seasoned just right. So yeah, Greg's Hospital, my number three. 
I would just like to make a comment on the sausage roll that it's actually the only food that I've ever, and it consistently always, get heartburn with. But any other food, no problem. It, that's one of its features. It's feature, not a bug. And it's, it's, it's funny that I could have, have pastries galore, but it's, when I ever have a sausage roll, that, it's the only time I ever get heartburn, which is a funny one. Well, I can't deny that. Concerning about square sausage, that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Phenomenal. The amount of pre-heart heart attack conditions I've been in, uh, the sausage rolls. But yeah, so McChicken Sandwich, previously slandered. You've been to the... So your number two is McChicken Sandwich? It is indeed. This is... This is absolute lunacy. Another... Uh, well, no, this is... So oh, this is a tough choice because the mayo chicken... I think sits comfortably alongside this, and I will put I will put them both as number two because the chicken sandwich is the same thing, except the bun and the size of the chicken patty. But the chicken sandwich, as the sit, sits as the meal, is what it, is. it sits at a, a classic McDonald's meal, and again, a child favorite. Not not so far back in my childhood, but as a as an early teenager, this was one. This was my favorite. And I will stand by that. And to this day, every single time I go to McDonald's, no matter what I order, I will order, order a meal chicken and I will always bow my head to the McChicken sandwich when I do. What What does the server do? Is... With the, mayo, the, the mayo chicken was born from the McChicken sandwich popularity. So I will always give a nod to the McChicken sandwich, even though I will never order it. Yeah, that's. I think that's fair, actually. Okay. Because I, I don't think I've had a McChicken sandwich, I'll be honest with you. So I... I mean, I'm just going on pure value for money in terms of these two things. That we, 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 we can tell, we can tell. Number two goes against the value for money, but the number one is right there with the top value for money. But Dan, how's your number two first? My number two is, and I don't think it needs to be discussed, to be honest, because we already have the McFlurry in all, in all its wonder and glory. It's just a nice wee treat. It's a it's a cheeky wee thing, and I, I love I love the whole not just the ice cream, but the spoon that comes with it, and the lid is just is so brilliantly designed. And this the lid's just ridiculous. So there you have it, number two McFlurry. My number two Burger King. Can you guess? Well, a Whopper. Well, you know it's not a chicken. You know it's not a chicken royale. I don't think I've ever had a Whopper. I've had a mini Whopper, XL bacon double cheeseburger. Come on, guys. I haven't been to a Burger King in 15 plus years. I've not been to a Burger King since university and I was so upset with the portion of fries I've never returned. This is the main problem with the Burger King generally is they're inconsistent. Whereas McDonald's absolutely excels at consistency across every one of their, their shops. Burger King could not be more variable in terms of the quality and the service that you receive <laughs> in different establishments. And so this is very dependent on where you go. But I mean, I'm yet to see somebody muck up this, muck this up. Excel uh, bacon double cheeseburger. You must use. I'm pretty sure Neil's had it, and I can only presume you've had it done. I've definitely had it. I've definitely had it, and it was probably the last time I was at Burger King, which is where I got the poor showing of fries. I'm pretty sure I put it on Facebook as well, in the in the public posting on Facebook days. <laughs> I wrote, I wrote them a complaint email. After my last visit to Burger King, actually, I got a reply. But that's maybe for another one. Once we get to that letter section. But um, yeah, Dan, have you had one? 
Um, like I say, I haven't been in 15 odd years plus, so I can't even remember what I ate the last time. Well, I mean, the last time I would have been there, I still would have been a teenager, so. Yeah, I do recommend it because the benefit they have got at McDonald's is the flame grilledness of the burgers. They are a lot tastier, yeah. Over, Sorry, the advantage over McDonald's they have, sorry. Yeah, my number two. Number one, Neil. Numero uno. Um, and I guess you you probably, if you know me, you'll know what this is. It, McDonald's. Well, yeah, of course it's McDonald's. Uh, but, no, it's not. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's so hard to whittle down to one choice, but it's the, it's, it's obviously has to be the wrap of the day. The, the chicken wraps, the, the, the calorie to protein content, it was a, a staple in my diet for a very long time. I if, I would say for up until before lockdown, I had on average about two a week. That was mostly due to walk back from the gym. I'd usually have one a week and I'd have at least one a week, one a week due to the many McDonald's being open on night shifts. What do you mean wrap of the day thought? Do you just go? Do you just go any random day and just have what they're having? Have what they've got. I would have until they started the vegan one. Then they started to be particular. So you've got the barbecue bacon, you've got the sweet chili chicken, you had the buffalo slash peri peri, which was I don't know what's been swapped out for now. Uh, on a Wednesday, you used to have the garlic mayo, which I had once, and never have again. That is, please stay away from that one. I believe that was it. That yeah, that was a seven. And now they've swapped in another one for the vegan one. But yeah, so the barbecue chicken and the sweet chilli is a, a staple. And their limited edition ones been usually extremely spicy ones. Even for a fast foods option, unbelievably spicy is the buffalo and the puri puri. I'm not sure. And since we came out of lockdown, they actually have removed this from the menu. So I've not even looked at McDonald's since. Yeah. And... They do two two different wraps. They do the grilled chicken and the sort of breaded breaded fried chicken. And if you're a masochist, you'll go for the grilled chicken. I once ordered one by accident, a grilled chicken. I I thought they changed it, and I was furious. Uh, but no, that was just my mistake. But I have ordered the grilled chicken in strict areas of diet, where I mean, you're it's only three hundred and fifty calories. And you've got 30 grams of protein with the grilled chicken. It's a, it is a perfect lunch. A perfect post-workout lunch. Even though you're sacrificing the flavour of the deep-fried breadcrumbs. Uh, the, uh, hands hands down, the, uh, that's the one I've been most loyal to by far for the last few years. Yeah, yeah good choice. Dan? Um, I would go for the... I mean, it's <laughs> you can eat it by yourself if you're feeling particularly greedy or you can share it with others. I quite enjoyed the um, dipping boneless feast that you can get out of KFC. So KFC with the, the it can be eight piece or twelve piece, and it's just the just the mini fillets with with popcorn chicken, and it comes with fries. And I I think their their fillets are better than the the meat on the bone that they do. I think their fillets are really nice. And they're not as greasy, not as greasy as well as the rest can be, because you know when you get your bucket, the top chickens can be quite crisp, and then by the time you get to the bottom, it's just the skin's flopping off, and it's just really soggy, just because it's sweated and the grease has run down. But the fillets are always really nice. So I mean, and like I said, the weekend we had a KFC when we were down after you'd left Neil, 
uh, and you know the fillets. The fillets were really nice. Uh, they're always, and you know, your mum said they're really nice, and your dad and Jillian enjoy them. So you know, they're, and they're easy to eat. Yeah, the the fillets are, they're always really crispy. The fillets. I think the best thing about the chicken on the bone is, I mean, you're getting the thigh meat, but also the skin, and like you say, that, that that's without a doubt the best bit. And as soon as like you say, you get halfway down, then there's only so much that you can eat. <laughs> In terms of the grease, so uh, uh, yeah, there's something there's something that actually bites into your value for money that I forgot in the last one, Gregor. If you order the wrap of the day, it's actually cheaper than ordering the selects because the wrap of the day includes two selects, and it's cheaper than getting the three pound twenty nine for three selects. It's a, it's the same with the same with the the KFC wraps because you get three bits of pop, three or four bits of popcorn, chicken, and the little mini wraps. <laughs> That's how they construct them. You are an absolute. You could you could be doing you know you could be doing like a like a dumb jolly kind of program on the TV. Come and find the come and find the cheapest, best deals. So, Gregor, hit us with the bargain of the year, the bargain of the the decade. Well, it's McDonald's, and if you had to hazard a guess, it would have to be a double cheeseburger. It has to be the wrap of the day. First thing I thought of when I made up this list, I thought, I can't even remember the last time I went, went to McDonald's and didn't order this. Whether I'm having a meal, whether I'm going in for a single thing and a McFlurry, I might have ordered a McFlurry on its own, but if I've ordered anything savoury, it's always been a wrap of the day or something else in a wrap of the day. Like, Neil's already said it, and I've led him with the question as well. You've got the... I mean, I don't know who's going to the grilled chicken. Like I said, I did it by mistake one time, but like in sunny. It's the spiciest thing I've had as well at a fast food restaurant. Spicier than a tower burger. I don't know how they got away with that, the peri peri one, because that was that was packing some serious heat. Uh, the buffalo one was the same. Yeah, but maybe there's a buffalo one then. It was one of the spi- it wasn't the sweet chili one, but it was one of the other spicy ones. One pound ninety nine. You're getting two chicken selects. You're getting a lot of veg in some cases because you're getting a good couple of slices of tomato, cucumber, and lettuce. You've got the wrap as well. Like you say, three hundred fifty calories. It's a good addition to like one of your standard meals. Two wraps is a perfect meal. Yeah, two two wraps, or even even like a small burger meal, like even a Big Mac meal and a wrap or something like that. I mean, most. I mean, the RDA would probably refute that. <laughs> the RDA is well five fifty for the Big Mac. Plus three fifty. I mean, well, if you compare that to an Indian or something, though. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it would always be a wrap and a mayo chicken or two wraps. I'd, it's usually in addition to a meal. I go now, and it's usually usually even the special. I've even had a special burger and the wrap of the day. Special burger meal and the wrap of the day. Highly recommend that. What's a special burger? Like just one of their seasonal specials, like one of their American road trip things or something. But yeah, I mean. Yeah, it, outstanding value, and it's probably my most consumed thing on this whole list. Great choice. Fair enough, Gregor. Good on you. Well, thank you very much, Gregor, for that. Anytime. For that, truly. I wonder what it'll be next time. Colours of hair bubble, maybe, for his man bun. Who knows? Possibilities are endless. Um. Uh, so, so, we're going to... F- Polish, polish this turd off. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll finish this. Is this actually gone out? What? 
Has this gone out? What? This episode? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, right. Thank you very much. So we'll we'll move on now to our our last, but definitely not least, moment in this podcast. Our last segment, which is Conspiracy Corner. And once again, we find ourselves with me having done the research and you guys having done NAF all. So... (laughs) So this week, this time around, I um, want to talk to you a bit, just briefly, about Atlantis and the history of the myth and the mystery that is the island of Atlantis, this lost land of a great civilization which vanished to the, the, the clouds of time. And to be honest, when I looked it up, it's actually really interesting if you get past all the madness. So if... You go back to orig- originally Atlantis was mentioned by the one of the, the greatest philosophers in history. Socrates. Plato. So- Socrates never wrote anything down. Plato wrote it for him though. I was thinking he might have. No, so well, when Plato was writing <laughs> she was writing about Socrates. Um it was in roughly in the year uh, three hundred and sixty BCE. He was writing a series of texts, uh, which included the 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 Critias and the the Timaeus. And unfortunately, I've had the pleasure of reading both of those at university. And within those texts, he discusses this lost island, which he claims was larger than the area of ancient Libya and Asia Minor combined. Asia Minor, for the uninitiated, is modern day Turkey, and it was considered. He believed that it was far off in the Atlantic past the Pillars of Hercules, which are now known it was now known as the Island of Gibraltar. And he claimed that this island existed nine thousand years before Plato himself was even even alive. So it's a quite quite an old quite an old, far back in history. And the people of Atlantis, the Atlanteans, subjugated much of of southern and coastal Mediterranean Europe and North Africa, and it wasn't until they came up against the Athenians that the great democratic society of Athens defeated the despotic Atlanteans and sent them on their way, and eventually Atlantis was destroyed by the gods for displeasing them and was destroyed and cast into the ocean. After that, Atlantis wasn't really discussed as 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 a historical place. It wasn't really considered as a historical place by for, for much of the history after Plato. However, in 1882, a man by the name of Ignatius Donnelly came along and, unlike his names... Any relation to Declan? Well, they don't, they don't share first given names, do they? Who? Anyone. Well, well, yeah, he says it with some people, but unfortunately this Ignatius came along and he wrote a book called Atlantis, the Antidevonian World. And in this text, he claimed, much as in a similar way that we discussed when we were talking about ancient, the ancient alien theory, was that human society in Europe and North Africa and in the Near East was totally incapable of c- coming up with the great developments that they did, such as agriculture and metallurgy and developing politics and advancing their civilizations. So it must have been another advanced civilization that came before them. And for Ignatius, he considered it to have been Atlantis. And this is kind of where much of the the modern thinking, the pseudoscience 
modern thinking of Atlantis comes from. And it's it's this it's this habit of the pseudo historical, pseudo cultural thinking that the advancements of societies must have been helped along by a society, a civilization that came before it that was far more advanced. And so he he came up with this and he espoused this and it's unfortunately it's continued to this day where people have claimed that Atlantis is this 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 super society. They were a super culture and they they enabled the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians and the Greeks and you know Chinese. If yeah, anyone after that from from actually having developed anything in the first place. So I mean that's the extreme version of events of what came out of what Plato wrote about. But I did find other explanations and I've written them in order of I want to say, I don't want to say less crazy but more more logical more thought through and more based on scientific possibility I I know a couple and I, there's one I hope you've got well I've got I've well after after the fact that the Atlanteans were sometimes a super society I've got that Atlantis was in Antarctica and this was this was espoused by a chap called Charles Hapgood in 1958, who said that due to massive tectonic changes 12,000 years ago, or no, 14,000 years ago, that Antarctica used to be a lush, warm, humid area and a great society developed there, and that was Atlantis, and due to, cli- due to changes in tectonic, tectonic activity and obviously climate, the Atlantis society vanished and is underneath the ice of Antarctica. However, from that, there are some interesting cultural and um, anthropological theories, which include, which I find quite interesting, is that it's a mythical retelling of the Black Sea Flood. Now, there's there's historical evidence and, well, ge- geological evidence that as the, ice a- as the Ice Age ended and as the ice, is- ice receded and as the ice melted and sea levels rose it's it's known that based on the geographical structure underneath the mediterranean and underneath the black sea it would have been very different so the black sea would have appeared more like as it is but about half the size and would have been a freshwater lake because the ice the water level was so low that it didn't actually go over and into the black sea now, about 5,600 BCE, so according to the, ge- the ge- geographers and the geologists, the melting ice caused the water level to rise, and this went over and into the Black Sea, and the Black Sea became part, became connected to the Mediterranean in the way it is today, you know, through the, through the Marmara Straits uh, by uh, Istanbul, which was Constantinople. But is now Istanbul, was Constantinople. Uh, so I thought that was quite an interesting one because you know that's that's not just sort of some harebrained scheme. And they think that possibly that there was a civilization that lived on the on the shores of this of this Black Sea lake, and as a result of the rising water, the civilization was destroyed. Another one is that the story of the Minoans, uh, a great seafaring culture that existed on Crete 
between five, 2500 BCE and 1600 BCE. We have plenty of historical evidence of them. They definitely existed. There's no doubt at all that they did exist. They were a seafaring, trading, very successful civilization that at the time challenged the blossoming civilization and uh, cultures that existed in Greece and sort of along the coast of of Turkey. And they, as a civilization, they died out as well. Um, they didn't die out, but they, they diminished and they eventually they became a, not, not a power, not a big player in the whole Mediterranean politics. And people think that possibly the Atlantis is uh, a reference to the Minoans who were cha- who did challenge the Greeks and who did challenge other cultures and civilizations in their sphere of influence and eventually they were overtaken by societies and cultures around them but the the last one I think is probably the I think is probably the the, the closest to truth we're going to get which is the fact that Plato's story is an allegory because in the context as as a proud Athenian, Plato is telling a story of uh, despotic, power-hungry culture which is enslaving people around the Mediterranean area in southern Europe and North Africa. And if it wasn't for the Athenians with their great political, democratic ideals, stood up to this despotic power and put them in their place... Because for Plato, the politics of Athens was something he was very proud of and he very strongly believed in the the blossoming democratic systems that they had there. And he felt that their system was almost heroic. They would call them the heroes that they defeated them. And so for Plato, he created Atlantis as an antithesis to Athens, almost just as a villain to be played against them. And there's, you know, he places them 9,000 years before he he was ever born and in the middle of the Atlantic. So, as I heard it being described, it's much like the start of Star Wars a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, which is exactly what he did. So, based on that, what do you guys think about the options? And I kind of imagine where you'll be going with it. Neil Jaw kicks it off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I've just, as you were reading your chat there, Dan, I was reading some edu- educational texts on wikipedia.org. En.wikipedia.org. Yeah, and uh, so just as a, a hypothesis of locations, they've managed to cover the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, uh, the Irish Sea, the Northern Sea, the Pacific and the Antarctica. So they've covered a lot of the big hitters there in terms of location. I mean, that covers a wide, sparse area of land. Uh, sorry, a wide, a wide area of land. Ocean. Well, yeah, <laughs> wide area of ocean. Like it's, it's, so, it's so vague. And, I mean, this is texts written 630 BC, which are known to be extremely accurate. 360 BC. It's totally up to you. Yeah, 360 BC. But interesting stories. I had a good introduction to this, to Atlantis. The board game was fun to play. 
I remember the sink. I remember this is so this my image of Atlantis was Atlantis is sinking, so I don't know how it was like every you'd play a few rounds and every and every few rounds the board game would get a little bit shorter and you just sink until the winner. So yeah, it's but yeah, but it's I see a lot of the images here we're dating back to times where Britain was still joined to Europe. Yeah, a different world that we know now. Which I, which seem which is now more apparent to me which um that would there would be a land that would exist. I'm sure there's a lot of lands in the world that have existed that have disappeared due to due to the rising ocean. I mean there's sorry, there's been evidence if you see along the coasts of near Middle East, so along Israel, Palestine Syria, Turkey, you know, there is, there is there's evidence of civilization off the coast because the sea levels were lower, but we're not talking, obviously, civilizations which were thousands of years ahead of the rest of the world and were somehow, you know, zooming ahead. The stories of floods and, you know, we all know the story of, of the flood, as, you know, as found in, in the Christian and, and Jewish holy books and and in islam as well and most civilizations have had a story about a massive flood that comes and destroys the world apart from a few that survive but yeah i'm looking at i'm looking at a map now which is one of the hypotheses and it's got here a picture of the time the a picture of the thames joining onto the rhine through land it's obviously london to Amsterdam slash Rotterdam. Yeah. Britain used to be connected to Europe via the via the channel. It used to be connected to yeah, so so if 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 we're separated now there's uh, if that's through flood or through uh, techno tectonic plate movement, who knows? Geologists probably do. <laughs> we do know. That was the <laughs> who knows? We do know. It was the it was the rising water due to the due to the ice caps well, due to the, the glacial melt. Well, that they also that's they reckon that north of north of that that's where Dogger Hills was, aka Atlantis. No, but the recent Britons moved off the the recent Britons and Islands tectonic movement. So ultimately, no, it's because the cha- it's because of the it's because of the when at the end of the ice age when the ice melted the sea levels rose high enough. Yeah, no, but prior to the ice age, the ice age. The Ice Age wasn't there, and then it was post Ice Age. There's been many Ice Ages. There's a there was one Ice Age up until ten thousand years ago. So you're saying prior to you're saying prior to the last Ice Age? No, well, I'm no during the last Ice Age. During du- during the last major Ice Age, because there have been several, the sea levels were much lower, and because of that, and because obviously the the channel the channel between you know, England, south coast of England, and France is relatively shallow compared to the rest of the the North Sea and the Atlantic Ocean. The water levels were low enough that there was the land bridge. It's a well it's a well established science you know, it's a scientific fact that this land bridge existed. But the reason there's a divide between Because the water levels rose. You're no <laughs> but the the ultimate reason because if if you want imagine at one point that we're all one big country, Americas, Asia, the tectonic movement 
moved us away from one big continent. The tectonic movement that occurred since the last supercontinent is not what caused this separation between us and Europe. That That is, we are moving in the same direction as, as the rest of that continent. But the gap which has been created is the result of the rising sea levels. But eventually, as the tectonic plates shift, we'll probably, France will probably move closer to us rather than further away because we're moving in the same direction. Right. I'll look into that. I wish you would, because honestly, Greg, I'm not, I'm not B- BSing any of this, and I wouldn't be saying it if I was, if I hadn't watched enough doc BBC documentaries about it. Have you seen my shared screen? So that's what eight thousand BC looks like. The Thames and the Rhine joined. No, no, I'm not disputing that. But you think it's tect- tectonic plate movement only? I'm saying from the point when we went from Pangaea to now. Oh, but that, yeah, that, but that's that's I'm talking yeah, but that's a that's a that's a global that's a global change. I'm talking about on a local level. Yeah, no, sorry, that's that's what that's what the point is. It, I'm I'm presuming that incorrectly for the majority of time that the non ice age period is the default period because that's what we're living just now. And so, the, if we were in a non ice age period. And we were connected to Europe as part of a supercontinent. Tectonic movement has since moved us away from that supercontinent. Well, yeah, yeah, but eventually we're going to crash back into each other anyway, and there will be a supercontinent again. But no, no, I know exactly what you're saying, and you know, I appreciate how you've dragged us onto the tectonic theory, <laughs> which is much more plausible than Atlantis. <laughs> Well, no, I think I think the issue is I think historically the issue is clearly that Atlantis. I think Atlantis is an allegory for something which played a point that Plato was trying to put across. I mean, I, I don't think there was a cave that Plato sat in when he came up. You know, in as he writes about in the Republic, I think it is just an allegory, and that's kind of what I'm kind of get at. Like, obviously, there is there's historical evidence of the way that ge- geographically and geologically we have changed. And you can kind of see where some of the arguments are. I was like, well, maybe there is a civilization, but I don't think that there is a civilization. If there was one, it isn't going to be a super all-powerful, all-knowing one. Yeah, no, I mean, the, I'm going on based on what you said and my very uh, dated and limited reading of the Mansmith, and it did seem to be some sort of allegory or some sort of lesson that Plato was trying to get across. However, I did find the Minoan argument quite interesting, albeit incorrect, because they obviously had that big the Thera volcanic eruption in Santorini. I mean, Santorini is a great like I've never been, but the picture of Santorini looked brilliant. They've also obviously got that big volcano in the middle and the island, the crater, kind of comes around the outside. Yeah, exactly. It's it's basically the crater of the. The eruption, and it's just a it's a bit more eloquent solution to the to the problem. But I think that the main issue is with all all these things like the the date we've gone. It's fairly sparse in that there's only what a few paragraphs written on it. Absolutely, and and all the early philosophers always worked in allegories as well. Like everything was an allegory, so that's how they so people could relate to it. It's all about making their philosophy relatable. 
Yeah, I mean, there's not to say there wasn't another story going about with this, especially given that the Minoan civilization suffered this fate. But, I mean, the way it's been interpreted modern in the modern age with the, with the great game that is Survive Escape from Atlantis and uh, <laughs> shall be reviewed at a later date. Yeah, and all the games and all the games and all the sort of stuff that goes on around the advanced civilizations obviously nonsense. So I think I think we can leave it there. I think I think that's it. I think we're all We put that one to bed. No one is I think we have. I, I think I think we will. I think it's time to put ourselves to bed. So well thank you guys very much. Um I think it's been a good chat tonight or this episode. Flaming long one. Um and is there any business before we finish? Might as well talk about the the letter segment. Uh, yeah, we called it the letter segment. That will not be unfortunately I didn't have time to do it this week, given the <laughs> given how long the topics and such ran. But I hope to add that segment. That sounds like BS, but yeah. Yeah, I'm starting to tag that segment in October. I've got a list of maybe 10 people that I've got letters lined up to. I have started a couple of them, however, there's a few special things I want to do that might take a few, like a bit, a bit of work. And so, probably October before I start getting them out. I don't know, Neil, if you looked at who you're going to send yours out to, you got a shortlist. Uh, I've not yet. Well, to be honest, I'm waiting on your leads. Right. I mean, you've, I've I've discussed the sort of caliber of people that I expect to send letters out to, but just the form, the format, and the it's kind of kind of a template to be sending to these people. Yeah. Right, well, thank you, Gregor, for the clarity. I'm sure the the listener will be very sad to hear that that's uh, there's been a delay to the latest development, but. I think we can go away now and we can review how this has gone. New format. Is this format going to work? And fact checked. Uh, we'll try. We'll try and get back to a fact check, but we make no promises. As always, you can reach us at Can I Interject Podcast at gmail dot com, or you can find us at our Twitter page at Can I Interject. So for now, that's goodbye from me. Goodbye, everyone, from Neil. That's a goodbye from me. Thank you very much, and goodbye. So everybody, welcome back to the Fact Check. We've gone away and listened to the podcast and done a quick review of where we may have slipped up on our facts in the heat of the moment. I mean, I'll start. I've only got a couple. Uh, both from my part. The Big Mac, I said, was 520 calories and 35 grams of protein. Not really that big a deal, but I'll correct it. It was 26 grams of protein and 580 calories, which is still great value for money and value of nutrition. Uh, And the green that I said was at Augusta was, in 2007, was actually Shinnecock Hills in 2004, for all you golf enthusiasts that were thinking that at the time including Gregor said at the time. Uh, but that's from me. I'd... Dan, do you want to cover this before Gregor brings out his, uh, his list of his encyclopedia? Well, well, to be honest, I listened, I listened to it so many times that, but I had so little to say. So I'm looking at the list that Gregor's put together and actually going, 
Uh, that wasn't me, that wasn't me. No, no, no. no, that's fine. That's absolutely okay. So, for me, I was 100%, I think. So I'm quite pleased with that. <laughs> I had, well, I, I said this in jest, but it was worth clarifying. The 100% beef company owned by McDonald's is patently a lie. Um, they've even got, I typed it in Google, the first hit was from McDonald's own website um, saying, is it's a Mythbuster section, is 100% beef a company owned by McDonald's and therefore your beef products are not 100% beef. They said, return this myth and confirm that 100% beef is not a company owned by McDonald's. I mean, almost on the face of it, it's, it's clearly not true, but it's quite, kind of quite humorous. Um, that was pretty much it. For as much waffle as we chatted last episode, there wasn't a lot of... I mean, to be honest, I haven't listened to Conspiracy Corner yet, so... That was all factual. That was all factual. That's that's usually when these things come out, as we'll get on to in episode six. The, the, joys, the joys of Conspiracy Corner is the fact that, because we know that so much of it is total nonsense, that to fact-check it is just to give more airtime to the loonies. Yeah, since since we never covered episode six, I guess we better cover the major mishaps from that one is to, that one too that one as well episode six what were the mishaps gregor so let's start with the first one um it was on the chat about covid so there was chat about the covid death rate being up at eight percent and down at 0.3 percent i mean i think we discussed this a little bit in the chat but uh, just do your own research on that one i think it's still quite unknown but i think 0.3 is a bit low eight percent is a bit high I think they were saying right about one percent, maybe a little bit lower or higher. But yeah, just to clarify that, because I think we're a bit confused in the podcast. The the next one I wanted to touch on. What well, this isn't a fact check. Well, I did fact check it, but it's correct. Well, I said oh, if you're over five years old, you can drink in the house. That wasn't strictly true because it's five years or older you can drink in the house. <laughs> so I don't know. Do we want to do it quickly? I suppose that's over five years as well, because if you are five years old, you're technically over like, past your fifth birthday. Is that actually a law? Yep, yeah, I checked this, and it is. And let's chat about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, but I just found that, because it's something I was told when I was, I was younger, and I just can't, I, like, I almost couldn't believe it when I was listening back. And when you think about it, but it is, it is throughout the UK, um, or certainly in the, by looks of in England, Scotland, if you're five years or older, you can drink in the house. Alcohol is. Is that a UK thing? Do you think that's what? Oh, I suppose you wouldn't off the top of your head if that's similar with other countries or individual to the UK. I don't know if it is similar to other countries. I imagine it's on the low side. If if you were if you're legalizing drinking at all, it's hard to it's hard to imagine another country coming up with five years old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can understand the drinking in fourteen in Europe, what we knew about when we were younger, but five seems so. Five seems on the low side for polluting your system with toxins. Right, next. How many Beatles albums are there? I, I was confused on the podcast despite having looked at it previously. I'm still confused about it. I think they've got 13... Best case, best guess, best estimate at this point is they've got 13 albums in total. <laughs> 12 of those are studio albums. And in America, they split what were 12-track albums in the UK into 9 tracks. And so there were more albums in America, which is, which is what slightly confused the canon. Were you familiar about this, Neil? Being an avid Beatles fan, I knew there was things. I knew there was American albums, but they weren't really well recognised here. Like Twist and Shout album, another top of my head, uh, the Beatles album, another just American. They can they're kind of like overlapping albums. 
Yeah, exactly. So I think they broadly have the same songs. It's just they were caught up in a different way just to kind of make it more profitable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't see the... I guess it was probably just... Maybe it was produced in America. I don't know for the reason. I said yesterday the famous Beatles track was made famous by Rowan Atkinson and he did sing it actually. Did I post a video to you? Find on YouTube. Didn't know, but I don't think he made it famous. No, he didn't mean that. Well, that, that was that was also a joke, obviously. But it was actually a wet, 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 wet cover in that soundtrack. So obviously, couldn't pay the royalties for the Beatles one. Don't know. Maybe they could have. Don't know. And finally, to the crux of this, the, the reason that we're going back to this is it was noted that there was no way to know how old the pyramids are in the conspiracy corner, and. <laughs> there is. Who who would say such an outlandish thing? It's called radiocarbon dating, and it's uh, fairly accurate. And there's no way to know how old the Sphinx is, and believed it's twelve thousand years old, due to some water erosion marks that were found on the Sphinx itself. But the prevalent scientific theory, to bar this one gentleman that Neil called out in the last episode, is that. <laughs> Robert Shock, nonetheless. <laughs> Robert Shock? Let's not. What a shocker. Shocker from who? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Or Skok, or Skok. Maybe I don't know how to spell it. Skioch. Skok. Yeah, anyway, we can know how old these things are, and we do, because of radiocarbon dating, and they're not 12,000 years old. Um, again, you can look up the exact dates, or the more precise dates on the internet with all their history, but we won't go into detail there. I will listen to the Robert Scosh uh, Joe Rogan podcast and I will come back to you on this one. Go for it. I mean, he's he. I mean, he's put these views forward and no one else in the scientific community has agreed with him. So it tells you something about the validity of his claims. <laughs> oh, well. Um, I, think, I think as well we should, because, because we're talking about episode 6 and episode 7 here, that we should also reflect on, on the, <laughs> the reimagined format and the fact that the listeners will be very pleased to know that for episode 8, we've gone flying back to the old ways. I want, I want to say as well, uh, Dan, just having just listened to episode 7, just what an excellent job you did making that to at least sound <laughs> something that was coherent. <laughs> because having lived through it, I didn't think we'd get anything near that level of um, sort of clarity in terms of the final product so publishable content yeah well done <laughs> if 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 thank you if if i'm really honest when so I, I did i did episode seven and that was as you know that took me a while to do just because of work and everything but also because we'd rejigged it to have one topic there was a lot more people talking over each other so it required a lot of time just to pick out the bits to to put them together in, you know, into into one piece of audio. But having started editing episode eight, uh, I have to admit that it's a real treat at how fast I can actually get this done. <laughs> and actually, it seems more it, it's flowing a lot better, and there's there's a lot of lot of humour and a lot of banter going on. So I think it's I think it was almost as if we were so relieved to be going back to the old way of working. And I, I think. I, this, I did not expect this upon at the outset of recording episode 7, but it was almost like the fast food segment saved it, I thought. 
<laughs> I knew you'd say that. <laughs> well, I, I think what saved it is I had such little to say, so the, <laughs> everyone is relieved. <laughs> yeah, so we're going back to to the format where at least one of or one of us has an interest in at least one of the subjects. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I love I love I love the chat about the pyramids being twelve thousand years old. Yeah, I don't know how that slipped me by and and I must have been yeah away with it. But no, we will be back with another episode of Can I Interject? And that's it from me, Neil and Dan. Thank you very much guys. And Gregor. Thanks everyone. Good day and good night. Mm-hmm.